spins a web any size. Catches seeds just like flies. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics. This is episode 19 of the show, and I appreciate you downloading and giving us a listen. My name is John Wilson, and I'm here again with Mr. Donovan Grant. Hello, hello, and a special shout-out to Larry Buffalo Boy and Mara Miller. There's a shout-out. Now stop bugging me about it. (laughs) Also with me is Mr. Bertoni. Oh, when he calls me Mr. Bertoni, I feel a hundred years old. Oh, and uh, speaking of hundred years old, I'd like to introduce our special guest co-host for the episode, Mr. J.R. Fettinger. Woohoo! Now, I'm not old, I'm classic. That's all I prefer <laughs> thinking about. And the classics never die. No, they Hence don't. The Hence the name. So it, you're, you're right at home here on, on Amazing Spider-Man Classics. <laughs> well, I'm... I'm Already and raring to go, I must say. I appreciate the invitation, but uh, I have to admit that I'm a little bit intimidated, actually, by really? being on here. Yes, yes. I, uh, but what? You know, for, for a couple of reasons, okay, and uh, bear with me. But first of all, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say Mr. Batoni. I'll make him feel 100 years old again. Uh, he is <laughs> one of the few to actually prompt a rewrite of part of a Spidey Kicks Butt article. And uh, because he, rem- I did an article on Mary Jane, and I made a comment about Peter's dalliances uh, in between uh, the time he was dating Mary Jane and some other women, and I mentioned the or Betty Brant when Betty left Ned, and mentioned that nothing happened. Well, I got this email from Mr. Bertoni, but he didn't go by Mr. Bertoni back then. He went by another name, and he informed me that I better read that uh, particular issue, which was like one ninety seventh or one ninety nine. 189, thank you. There we go. And uh, he reminded me, I better read that read that again. And I did. And I'm thinking, holy crap. I'm married. I've had two <laughs> kids. And I've got some teenager reminding me of what, uh, uh, of, of what a, uh, <clears throat> an encounter uh, is like. And uh, <laughs> so that, was, that was just dreadfully embarrassing. The, the, the second reason I'm actually intimidated is because I've been listening to some of your podcasts and I've seen the get, you know, listen to some of your guests. And for a moment, I was thinking, man, I got this by the ass. You know, I mean, first <laughs> thing, you, know, you know, Brad Douglas, you know, I mean, come on, the guys from Missouri, you know, I don't he know was he was know. just a guy who called me one day. I don't I don't yeah. even know him. I mean, I don't know if you know about people from Missouri, but they're the ones who actually elected a dead guy to the U.S. Senate not too many years ago. And, uh, you know, rather than some states which were electing old fossils like Robert Byrd or Strom Thurmond, they actually elected a dead guy. So next time you talk to Brad, ask him how Mel Carnahan's doing in the Senate. And, uh, of course, then you had Michael Bailey, who, uh, you know, here was the man of a thousand podcasts who at uh, approximately 35 minutes and 32 seconds into the podcast he guest starred on basically gave you the equivalent of the podcasting finger. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and of course, I mean, you know, if, if that doesn't encourage people to go listen to it, uh, you know, then uh, I don't know what well, but 35 minutes, 30 seconds into it, Mr. Bailey tells the amazing classics crew just what he thinks of their show. So I figured, well, you know, if you can't get any better than these guys, I've, you know, I'm going to be a star. And then I listened to one with British accent guy. And it's like, oh, 
God, British, they got a guy with a British accent. I said, you know, I mean, you know, when one of those guys talked, I mean, he could talk about a urinary tract infection and it would sound either like Shakespeare or high comedy. So, you know, I just, I just can't compete with that. So, oh boy. <laughs> but I'll do my best. <laughs> so, awesome. so, so Brad Douglas and Michael Bailey guest star and you're on phase, but the great Stephen Lacey, his first time to bat. <laughs> I am, I am thoroughly intimidated. I tell you. There is no way to follow up on a guy with a British accent. There just isn't. We did it with Gerard Delator. Ah, I haven't heard Gerard yet. Okay, well, well, good. We're so glad you're here. Um, <laughs> JR is involved with the Spider-Man Crawl Space panel. Those of you who are familiar with that podcast are well acquainted with his voice. But also, you had some other involvements on the internet there, JR. Talk about the, uh, the non-R-rated ones. <laughs> well, um... My only claim to fame, really, is the uh, the Spidey Kicks Butt website, uh, which um, I started back in uh, 1998, I believe, basically as a response to a lot of uh, crap I was reading on the Internet about uh, people who really didn't know about Norman Osborn's background, and then basically to counter all the bullet that Marvel was coming out about the spider marriage. Which, you know, folks, 15 years before Brand New Day, Marvel was uh, jonesing on the spider marriage. So, you know, what, you know, it's, it's been going on for a long time. So I wrote a, basically, I just wrote a bunch of long-winded, boring articles, you know, that, that people, for whatever strange, deranged reason, actually seem to read and enjoy. But uh, I've been a little bit slow the last couple of years because I just had too many uh, too many other things going on. And uh, but so anyway, yeah, I've got a I've got a ver- veritable archive of my rambling and ponderings over the last ten years about various uh, matters uh, pertaining to Spider-Man. So it's it's spelled like it sounds. Spidey kicks butt. .com, one of the uh, most comprehensive websites about Spider-Man, with perhaps one of the dumbest names. It was your articles that. I was reading for a while before I went to the crawl space, and it was if it wasn't for the your articles, I wouldn't have met these guys, and we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Oh my god, I just yeah. I'm, I'm I'm taken aback. I'm just taken. You should aback. probably talk about your book. Well, not your book, but you know the book that you contributed <laughs> to, like the web swinger thing. Oh yeah, web slinger. Yeah. Jr. is published. Well, yeah, I'm published, but uh, I couldn't. I can't get too many people. I'll tell you a story about that in a little bit. But yeah, I was asked. Uh, there's a um, uh, they are uh, oh heavens to heavens to Murgatroyd Smart Pop. They publish basically books of essays on items and characters of popular culture like Batman, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, things of that nature. And they get different people from all over the uh, you know the the hemisphere or whatever to uh, to write. And they get like actual real writers to write these little essays. So why the hell they contacted me for one? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> except I think. I think they confused me with a friend of mine whose book I was actually plugging on my website once, and they thought I was him because that's how they addressed me. And it's like, uh, no, I'm not James Broderick. I'm J.R. Fettinger. <laughs> and I think by <laughs> then they had uh, they had made a verbal contract with me and were probably afraid to break it. So, but yeah, I contributed that, and uh, that was a couple years ago. I think uh, you know to sh- to show a um, you know to show you what a just how much my drawing power is. Uh, I think it sold a grand total of 1,100 copies. Uh, <laughs> so it was edited by Jerry Conway um, and uh, actually has some uh, real writers. I mean, it's, it's fairly interesting. I mean, all the Smart Pop stuff is, is fairly interesting. They've got a website, so if you want to check it out, smartpop.com. So. And what was the actual name of the book again? It was called Web Slinger. Yeah, 
basically they have to use a very generic name and they couldn't use any pictures of the uh, actual characters involved uh, for legal reasons. So it's very nebulous. You wouldn't know it's about you wouldn't really know it's about Spider-Man unless you really looked hard and long at it. So I mm. see it right here. It is still on Amazon.com yeah. um, selling new paperback for sixteen dollars and fifteen cents. Hey, I'm not in a bargain bin yet. Okay, that's, yet. that's that's one small victory. So yeah, go check that out on Amazon. Also, SpideyKicksButt.com. And tell us, I'd like to get the uh, the secret origins of the people we have on the show. Can you tell us how you got into comics in general and uh, Spider-Man in particular? <clears throat> oh, well, let's see here. Well, I mean, I was... I'm assuming comics were around when you were young, right? Well, you know, uh, we had cave drawings. And uh, then it kind of all evolved to uh, drawings on papyrus, and uh, eventually we got to, to comic books, as, as you understand them today. But uh, I was, uh, you know, I was just a, uh, I was born a, a poor black child in Petersburg, Indiana, and uh, to uh, <laughs> reference Steve Martin's The Jerk, if any of you have seen that movie. I mean, I was just a normal kid, you know. I mean, uh, my, uh, you know, I had to follow my mother into the newsstand while she, you know, bought all her, you know, boring female crap. And, uh, you know, I used to hang out at the comic rack. And, uh, you know, there was one particular time she told me that, you know, okay, I could buy one, but only one comic book. I said, okay, well, you know. Do I do Batman? And I don't like that. You know, I do Superman. And I'm like, ah, Spider-Man. He looks cool. Okay, so I grabbed it. It was issue number 134, and uh, it was just the first meeting of the first with the <laughs> the first tarantula. <laughs> and uh, I think there's been what two or three more since then. And uh, I, you know, I read that and I was hooked. I was hooked. And then I uh, actually I was at my dad's barber shop and they had he had a copy of Spider-Man Annual number nine which was a reprint of the old spectacular number two. And it was one of the great Spidey green goblin battles. Yes. And this was, I tell you, this was the, the uh, that was the one that, uh, you know, that I, I became a, the, the, uh, the Spider-Man equivalent of a Coke fiend. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was hooked from then on. And, uh, unfortunately 36 years later, I haven't outgrown it. But really, do you need to, I mean, I don't see the need to give up comic books as an adult, but you know that's just me. Well, you know the thing is, if we don't, uh, you know, if we don't elect Nancy King into the Senate, though, our children will be doomed to read comic books. Uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, I, I, you know, my my wife thinks I need to grow out of them, but uh, I think she's realized that after so many years, that uh, that's probably one 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 thing she can't rehabilitate about me. So. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for being uh, with us here tonight. And this episode, we are going to be looking at Mr. Fettinger's favorite character, Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, as he shows up in Amazing Spider-Man 26 and 27, a story titled The Man in the Crime Master's Mask. So we have lots of good stuff ahead of us tonight. Mr. Fettinger passed away nine years ago. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm just Jr. If you say Mr. Fettinger, I'm thinking, oh, my God, is the old man back? Um, but uh, if I feel 100 years old when you call me Mr. Bratoni, then how old does Jr. feel when you call him Mr. Fettinger? I don't, uh, think we, I don't know if we have the numbers that are high yet. The Greeks haven't invented them yet. I just think of, whenever I hear that name, I think of my old man. Ugh. So... <laughs> Go ahead, mindless, mindless segue. Go ahead. You've got mail. Before we get to those books, though, we have a couple emails and iTunes reviews to look at. The first one is from Aiden Mohan. Don, you have that one. Hey, guys. 
I really love the show so far, and you guys are really fun to listen to. Like I said, hint, hint, I'm willing to guest star whenever you need. I got a few comments to make, but first I'd like to bring up John Lennon's killer. I'm afraid I have to somewhat strongly disagree with Josh because that, that he only did it for the attention. Yes, he committed the murder partly for the attention, but to his heavily disillusioned mind, he did it because he believed Lennon had become a hypocrite. The man is completely and utterly criminally insane. The man was obsessed with Catcher in the Rye. It's a brilliant book, but nothing to obsess over. Hey guys, I'd like to point out something out. Reinhardt was next brilliantly done Sinister Six trilogy of novels in the 1990s by Adam Troy Castro. From Aiden M. Moham, P.S. Josh, I still love you. Well, there's that whole thing where you don't say Chapman's name, but it's it's going to be hard to talk about this in this email and the next one without saying it, so I'm going to say Chapman's name, which I already have. Chapman has given like three or four different motivations over the few last few decades. And one of them has been, and he has said a few times in interviews and in like, you know, court things that he did it because he wanted to be as famous as John Lennon. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the whole don't say Chapman's name thing started because it was, well, you know, we're not going to give him the satisfaction of even saying his name. So he has given the catcher in the rye explanation. Also, there's been a few explanations. The guy's just off his rocker. Right. And as we're recording this, it's uh, two days before the anniversary of the murder. Oh, wow. 30, 30 years, yeah. It's it, it's a very touchy subject among Beatles fans. My next email is from Steve Rogers. He writes the subject line, Yeah, I see that was crossing the line. I guess I just went with the whole idea of Mark David for, 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 for Chapman's sick and twisted reasoning of murdering Lennon because Lennon dared to be wealthy there and comparing that with Ditko's anti-commercialism stance. Just thought I'd send an apology for that really bad analogy. And I appreciate that, Steve. I do. He says, but yeah, the point is more that Ditko hates the whole idea of the pop and commercialization of characters that are pretty much meant to be used for pop and commercialization. Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, even The Question, weren't meant to be stuck in a vacuum of being these science fiction, adventure, fantasy, and horror characters in the same way characters in books by Bradbury, Asimov, Tolkien, and even crossing over to other literature giants like Steinbeck and Orwell, where the only mainstream attention they'll eventually get are in, say, a film adaptation. Or in classrooms, where, for example, both Steinbeck and Orwell are assigned reading for history courses as well as English literature courses. You work for a major comic book company, specifically one aimed directly towards young audiences. It goes hand-in-hand with Saturday morning cartoon fare, or even primetime as the Flintstones were back in the day. In other words, your craft is not intended to be taking all that seriously, and your craft is prime real, prime real estate for commercialization and fun stuff like silly clubs like the Merry Marvel Marching Society. As I said in the last email, whom did he think he was working for? Some indie company that at best would have sold literally a thousand copies per year in those days? Okay, here's a better analogy then. Ditko, at least the 1965 Ditko, is like an actress best known for soft-core pornish scenes... <laughs> and film, but trying to convince the world that she is some great artist. Okay, so why are you doing these trashy skin flicks and not churning out Oscar nomination-worthy roles? You can't have your cake and eat it too in that sense. You can't consider yourself some great sci-fi writer, yet work in the world of mass-marketed, for children, mind you, comic books. And then sit years later and trash that world like some Rorschach-like based off Ditko's Vic Sage, by the way, holier-than-thou kind of guy. All right, rant off. Till next time, Steve. 
I don't think that Ditko really saw comic books as a trashy medium. I mean, if that, was, if that was the case, he wouldn't have made his own comic books. I mean, he would have done something else. I think that uh, a softcore pornish thing and trying to convince these, I think, I think that's not as good as an analogy either. But, I mean, like, the point's across, so whatever. Yeah, yeah, the point is there. I mean, I honestly know very little about Steve Ditko. We, we've kind of joked about his, his politics on here. Uh, when it comes down to the details, I really know very little. So I can't really speak to it. I have never heard Spider-Man, you know, compared to softcore porn before. But there's always a first time for everything. We'll just we, we, we I do appreciate the apology for the whole murderer thing, because that did make me kind of uncomfortable with your last email, Steve. So I appreciate that. But I, I think that, you know, Steve, Aiden, and, and any others who might be tempted to write in, I think that perhaps the whole murderer of John Lennon subplot on Amazing Spider-Man Classics can be drawn to a close at this point, if that's okay. But thank you always for writing in. We always enjoy comments about the show, about Spider-Man, about your thoughts on the books, and all those things. So our last email, before we look at the iTunes reviews, is from Liam Elcote. And Liam, I'm guessing that we're pronouncing your name correctly because you didn't correct us from last time. So we're going with Liam Elcote, if that's okay. That's what it looks like to me. And Josh has this email. The princess and her python. All right, guys, <laughs> just listen to the circus, the crime, Masters of Menace epic, and thought you may find some sort of worth in the following information on what develops in the life of Zelda Dubois, the female, and her <laughs> yes. python, who didn't originate from the Savage Land, and a fairly recent Punisher series. Really? 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 It was revealed that Prince, yeah. Princess Python, like, in a Punisher series? That's, like, weird. It was revealed <laughs> that Princess Python was married to nobody's favorite misfit from Daredevil's rogues gallery, Stilt Man. <laughs> wow. Awesome. I'm wondering if she's pulling a Bretonian and is going to say gotcha at the end of this email. And if that wasn't enough, hold on to your hats. Or if you're not wearing hats, then put a hat on and hold on to it. Yes, sir. I got it. I got a John Romita Spider-Man hat like nearby with panels from uh, some of his issues. I'll put that on. Do I wear like like half of the time I wear a black baseball cap that has a Spider-Man insignia on the front? I'm a stove top hat. You're moved on, yeah. Okay, so we're holding on to our hats for the shocking revelation that after Stiltman's death at the hand of Frank Castle, Princess Python turned to the loving arms of Spider-Man's greatest foe <laughs> yet, the Gibbon. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't read this email before now. I'm reading this email, like, for the first time. Like, here, I, I, I have no clue where this is going. Uh, <laughs> Princess I, I Python and the Gibbon. Okay, well, this is a fun ride. Let me see where it's going to take me next. <laughs> So what became of her python, I hear you ask? Well, sadly, her python died a very nasty death. And for half an issue, she was probably just called Princess Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he, he's messing with us. I, I, I'm, I'm calling it now. She was just <laughs> called Princess Nothing until Gibbon bought her a new python at the end of the issue. Great show, guys. I forgot to say that the last email I sent, you must have gotten depressed about the lack of approval you received from me. We did. It's like he knows me. I I, I, I I went to a very dark place. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Thank you for that illumination, Liam, because I had no idea that poor Princess Python had such a roller coaster life. This can't be true. I, I, I'm totally willing to believe that it is true because she is an offbeat, C-list at most villain. And to have her be involved with love triangles with other offbeat C-list villains, or in the Gibbons case, H-list villains. Punisher? 
And the Punisher. <laughs> and Gibbon buys her, like, a new python, and that's, like, the plot of the issue. Like, you know, Gibbon going to all the <laughs> Okay, I'm going to Chronology Project to find what issues of Punisher that is, because that's, that's amazing. Princess Python's rapidly becoming my favorite villainess of the Marvel Universe, like, seriously. Okay. What about Elijah the Scroll? Since when was she ever... That was my least favorite, just because of all the things she did. Okay, Liam, Princess Python's Punisher appearances are not chronicled on the Chronology Project. For whatever reason, those issues of the Punisher haven't been cataloged. So please write back with references if you if you have them. Don't quit your day job to look for them or anything. But if you have those issue numbers, I would really like to know when Princess Python, when so, she was involved with the Punisher and Stiltman. <laughs> how, how could this happen? <laughs> okay, so... Thank you so much for that email. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, we got a couple of iTunes reviews. Uh, the first was uh, two days after my mom's birthday from my very own state, Blake Gilbert in Amarillo, Texas. I'm over in East Texas, buddy, So, uh, and I grew up in the Dallas area, so we're several, several hours apart, but still the same state. Uh, he gives us five stars, saying best podcast ever. He says, hello, Spider Gang. First discover your podcast on my uncle's computer via Crawlspace. At the time, I had no clue the power of podcasting, and now that I have, I'm unable to find a podcast like this. Blake Gilbert signing off. P.S. Here's a great Star Wars pants joke. Be mindful of your pants, Anakin. They betray you. <laughs> I, You're one of us forever now. <laughs> yes, you are. I, I saw that review in the morning. I was having a really bad morning for reasons that I won't go into here. And I saw that review, and it just put a smile on my face. So thank you very much, Blake, for that. We also have one from Pete Beiser, who gives us also five stars and says, Fun Podcast. This is just a couple days ago now. Picked up the Lee Ditko Spider-Man Marvel Masterworks at a recent con and saw ASM Classics later that day on iTunes. Feels like reading the books and talking about them with friends. Funny and informative talk from people who really care about this character. With the premiere musical and new movie in the works, good way to start newbies and those who want to take a look at the beginning of Spidey, all with a few laughs. That's good stuff, Pete. Thank you so much for writing that. But yeah, with the uh, the new movie, and they just cast Gwen Stacy as Emma Stone, and lots of Spidey works in the works. Including, well maybe not including, but also possibly including, the mysterious big Marvel film project that was mentioned yesterday. They didn't say anything about what it is, except that after the Avengers, they have another big film project that will culminate in 2017. The new Avengers. Hmm. No clue what that could be, but maybe it involves Spidey. Now that the email is done, I wanted to mention an announcement. We didn't do this at the beginning of the episode because the rest of this episode was recorded a month ago. Amazing Spider-Man Classics now has a sponsor. There is a gaming company online called Roll2Play, spelled with a number two. They uh, have a variety of games and gaming accessories available. You can find them at Roll2Play.com or at their Facebook page. Just search Roll2Play, spelled with a number two, and it's all one word. They currently have 15% off all of their merchandise for the uh, fall season to get ready for the holidays. And they have this uh, new product they just uh, got a hold of that are Zombie Dice. For those of you who play dice games and want something related to Halloween, they are uh, they are pretty cool looking there. So roll to play. We want to thank you for sponsoring Amazing Spider-Man Classics. 
Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. So, we have Amazing Spider-Man 26. It was released on April 8, 1965, with a cover date of July. And Mr. Josh Bertoni will be telling us all about it. Yay, Josh! Yay! Okay, so Amazing Spider-Man issue 26, The Man in the Crime Master's Mask, as the cover blurb says cover has Spider-Man on the roof of a city building with the crime master who's in a business suit as most criminals are often to do with a black mask and a fedora on he's got two guns Spider-Man's on the edge of the roof but instead of shooting Spider-Man with the gun that has the bullet to kill him once and for all he's shooting some gas at him the Green Goblin doesn't seem to uh, confused by the fact that he's using the gas gun instead of the bullet gun as he's hanging with his glider in the background cheering on the crime master or so it appears that's what he likes to do on the covers both of these covers he's just sort of like hanging in the background cheering him on yeah i shouldn't give the crime master too much of a hard time because in the actual story itself there is an explanation for why he's not using the gun but whenever i see that cover if i haven't read the story in a while i always have that reaction like just use the gun to kill him but okay is anybody besides me who thinks that the the name crime master is kind of silly like if if, well, a gang, if a gang leader announced, you know, a masked guy announces that he was going to be the crime master. Does the crime like, master look silly to you? Does he make you want to smile? <laughs> or forget, or forget it. it. <laughs> okay, maybe it's just me. No, I was going to I was going to comment on it, but uh, I was going to wait until we got to page three to actually do it. So, okay, well, uh, okay, we'll we'll go to, we'll we'll wait for that then. Okay, we open to the splash page, the mystery of the man in the crime master's mask. What a mystery it is. We got, like, seven question marks, you know, to show you how big of a... Well, seven in the, like, foreground. And the actual uh, question... Yeah, you know what? Let's count all these question marks. We got seven there, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, we got eleven question marks on this page. So this is a big mystery. And Spider-Man's sitting on, like, (laughs) a big one, pondering it. It's like, hmm... Both either either that or the Riddler's going to make a guest appearance, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah. that's who it really well, is. The Riddler really is the crime master. Yeah. Well, with Spider-Man is Frederick Foswell standing in the middle of the Green Goblin and the crime master. Both the crime master and the Green Goblin know each other's identities. Exclamation point, exclamation point, because it's that exciting. And that statement's actually a bold-faced lie, by the way, but that's a retcon. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know the retcon. Is it a retcon? Yeah, there's a retcon. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. I was I was actually thinking, I wonder if John knows about the retcon. No, but the only thing I know about the story is what's in these two books. But what strange secret is known only to Frederick Foswell? Can Spider-Man solve the dark riddle? Like, <laughs> cloaked within a grim puzzle, hidden beneath the shadows of a deadly enigma? Oh, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stan at his finest. And speaking of Stan at his finest, this book is stealthily scripted by Stan Lee painstakingly plotted and drawn by Steve Ditko and lovingly lettered by S. Rosen. And when I see this splash page, the first thing, because with like Frederick Foswell standing there with the two bad guys on either side of him, uh, the first thing I think about is the letter writer recently who had guessed that the Green Goblin might be Frederick Foswell. And I know that this image is just intended as a hook. And, you know, we're going to see teases. The story teases a lot about, you know, Foswell's identity and who he is as far as the two characters go and i just i have to think that like they had that in mind as they were doing this story that people were guessing it was foswell as the green goblin 
Well, I'm thinking, you know, too, they say what strange secret is known only to Frederick Foswell. Well, I mean, I, the, this story has one answer, but frankly, the real secret that only Frederick Foswell knows is that he has a daughter who several years later in Marvel team up number what, 38 and 39 or 39 and 40 will take on the disguise of the big man uh, while some other kid, while the, the son of the, the crime master takes on his guys and they'll fight Spidey in the human torch. But that's many years in the future. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. Bertone, Bertone knows. They, oh, they he, like, he, he cut Joshua the quick. They, 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 they kill each other, and then it's like, oh, no, this was actually – the big man was actually my true love, Janice. It was Janice <laughs> Foswell, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. I, I remember that issue. I think it was like late 70s, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of when Marvel Team Up started, but yeah, it was like the mid to late 70s. Yeah, he teamed up with the Torch in one issue, and then the Torch let because we couldn't have a guest star in two straight issues. The Torch bailed out, and then we had the Sons of the Tiger for the last for the second half. So, oh yeah, the Sons Even of the Tiger. Stars. Well, we start off with Peter Parker sneaking around his house looking for his costume that Aunt May took away uh, last issue. He decides that it makes sense to look everywhere but her room. You know, because she's sleeping and he can't just sneak around there. So he looks in the garbage. He looks everywhere but her room, which is actually the most likely place it might be. He panics, thinking that a Spider-Man without his costume is like a beetle without his hair, which is ironic because Ringo Starr did shave his head in the 70s. That that is true. That happened. I believe you. Can we backtrack backtrack a minute uh, to the uh, second panel? where uh, Peter is saying, I can tell by her steady breathing that she's sound asleep. You know, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm, if I've got Aunt May, you know, and she's what, 70, 80 years old, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm listening to see if she's breathing to see if she's still alive. You know? <laughs> and then, and then I can just imagine Peter going, I can tell by her steady breathing that the old bat's still alive. Damn it. <laughs> uh, so look, anyway. look at space. I was thinking that too. <laughs> yeah. My, <laughs> I'll have to feed her more poison next time. He wonders if perhaps he can get his other costume back from Jonah, the one that he, you know, left in the Spider Slayer last issue, which was just called Robot at this point. So he goes to sleep, deciding that he'll let the morning version of Peter Parker worry about it. Meanwhile, at a dock, the Green Goblin is arguing with the Crime Master. They are breaking up, apparently. Crime Master wants to go it alone instead of being partners. And he offers Green Goblin a spot as his flunky, which Green Goblin doesn't take too well of this. They know each other's secret identities, but neither can expose the other one. So, as the Crime Master notes, it's a stalemate. Which, again, that's a bold-faced lie. Now, do we want to well, talk about the retcon now, or do we want to uh, address that later? Well, the first thing wait. I want to say is that th- we feel like these two guys have history. Like, the way they're talking, like they've known each other for a while. And I know that the Crime Master showed up in an issue of Untold Tales. Is that the retcon you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Okay, then yeah, tell us. They have that deal with each other that they'll work together and they'll reveal each other's secret identities. So uh, the crime master reveals himself as Nick Lucky Lewis. I guess that's not a spoiler for people listening to this podcast. And the Green Goblin reveals his identity as J. Jonah Jameson? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently Norman funny. Osborne took a J. Jonah Jameson mask with him. So he was wearing a mask or he just said that's his name? No, he like took off his mask and he had a J. Jonah Jameson mask on. <laughs> wow. Actually, I thought that was, I, I mean, I, uh, of course, I can, I'm not the fan of Untold that uh, Bertoni is, as I've heard him reference Untold, uh, even sarcastically so, uh, on, on at least more than one occasion here on your podcast. But uh, I actually thought that was kind of a clever idea, because once 
since we knew that Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin, there's just absolutely no way that Norman would tell a street-level punk who he really was. And knowing Norman's rather twisted sense of humor, it made perfect sense that, I mean, to me, that he would say, oh, I'm really J. Jonah Jameson, you know, and having this little little laugh at everybody's expense. So, I, I you know, I, that's a retcon I actually thought made some sense. And it fits untold really during, well, uh, because next issue, there's a moment next issue where, like, uh, Crime Master sees Jonah, Foswell, and Spider-Man. He's like, it's my chance to finish all three of them off at once. And this is, like, his first time mentioning Jonah in the story. Like, why does he want to finish Jonah off? Didn't he have a mat on for the Green Goblin? So That was uh, that was something I was wondering about whenever I was writing that down. Uh, that scene is why yep. he's after Jonah. It fits song. really well. That does fit really well. I like that record. Well, wasn't um, Untold Tales, the duration of that series, wasn't it, like, in between, like, uh, Ben being Spider-Man and then Norman Osborn coming back? So wasn't that retcon done before Norman Osborn was revealed to be, like, a Bond villain kind of thing? Like it was done when, he, when they thought still they thought he was dead, right? And they, they and they still made him as clever to do that. Is that is that true? Or was he already back by the time that issue came out? No, Norman was actually back in the titles by this time. Untold Tales had actually started right after the reveal of Ben Riley being the real Spider-Man, you know. And since, of course, yeah. the last the last twenty years of Amazing were all about a fake Spider-Man. Ha ha ha! You know, Marvel thinks they really pulled a fast one on us. So they decided to show us all these untold tales, which which kind of I, I which actually kind of fit seamlessly as well as it could within the old uh, old Lee Ditko run. But yeah, by the time twenty five came around, Norman Norman was already back. I remember. I remember. Like at the, at the end of the, uh, issue one of Untold Tales, says, "Yes, this is the series that tells the real, the secret life of uh, Ben Riley as we now know him." But back when he was Peter Parker, I remember that specifically. So I knew it was like right around the Clone Saga, but I didn't know when that issue came out. Crime Master then proceeds to take over some criminal gangs by throwing pieces of paper into windows. Did I mention that these are strongly worded pieces of paper? Well, he decides to call some mobsters and tell them that, and tell them to watch their cars blow up. That seems more effective. <laughs> the criminals all discuss the crime master in a classic Steve Ditko floating head sequence. He must be some kind of hot shot if he dares to challenge all of us at once. The crime master, who knows? Maybe he's just what we need. Me, I don't like him. Nah, I say we should fight him. Nobody's taking over my mob. How did he know where to contact us? How did he know where we all are? He must have the goods on us. He must be someone from the rackets. He can even be one of us. But he's dangerous. He knows too much. Okay, so backing up just a little bit, at the bottom of page three, when they're reading the letter, and it says it's signed the crime master, and the guy's like, the crime master? And then on the next page, whenever the other mobster is in his house and he gets a phone call, and he says, quiet, this is the crime master. I'm taking over from now on. I'm thinking, they're like, the, the, the what? The, the crime master? <laughs> That's my what kind of crappy name is that? <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. I was about to say what, what the crime master in at the bottom of page three says the entire underworld will tremble at the mere mention of the name crime master. I'm thinking no, the entire underworld will laugh their ass off at the mention of the name <laughs> crime master. Like, but, really? Uh, That's really his name? You had to well, be. This... I guess you had to be in the '60s. Well, this is the same underworld where just you're, where one of the biggest you know players is a guy named Fancy Dan. So. <laughs> and, and, our, and our other big player this issue does happen to dress in you know green scaly skin and purple so yeah fancy dan was from the greenwich village mob uh but anyway that's that's another story altogether so 
Well, after the floating heads, we get four panels of a red herring. Then, just before dawn breaks over the sprawling metropolis, inside an apartment we see there is nothing more for me to do tonight. I'll close the window and pull the blinds down now. The game I'm playing is a dangerous one. One error, one miscalculation can mean my very life. But I can't back out now. I'll switch on the light and change clothes. And who has a thought balloon? I'll switch on the light and change clothes. That's like way, that's like over-exposition even for Stanley. Creepy old men who change clothes. Like, by the windows of their house, with the lights on. Those are the ones who have those thoughts. My special working clothes should be safe enough here, in this hollowed-out portion of my bedroom closets. But now it's time for Frederick Foswell to return to his job as news reporter for J. Jonah Jameson's Daily Bugle. And I yes, we get, we get the full... Yeah, he's talking out... He's got a journal, just like the Sin Eater did or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, Frederick Foswell, and I guess if you were reading this in the 60s sequentially, it looks like the crime master returned to his apartment and changed to Frederick Foswell. Uh, the way that comic writing is now, if it's that obvious, then chances are you need to look at the scene again. But I guess back then this <laughs> fooled a lot of people. I think that's I think that's the, they're intentionally the way they're writing it. But yeah. Yeah. The next morning at breakfast, Peter tries to get Aunt May to casually slip where she put his costume, and she doesn't want to talk about it. It's only about dressing warm and taking the bus if it rains. Oh, Aunt May. Peter has had enough of this crazy woman, so he goes to the Daily Bugle where another crazy woman happens to be waiting for him. Can I, can I real quick? Like, this is this is the first of three counts where the women in Peter's life just give him nothing but trouble. So we've had count one. Let us continue. Yes. Oh, yes. Let us continue. As Peter goes to the Daily Bugle and Betty just gives him the business right away. She's still mad at him for her last issue where he encouraged Jonah to use the first Spider Slayer robots. Peter finally decides, you know what? Enough of this. Aw, oh, rats. First you write letters to Ned Leeds because you feel sorry for him. Then you worry about Spider-Man. How about having a good word for Peter Parker? You mean the Peter has been dating Liz Allen and who has another girlfriend who he's never even mentioned to me, namely Mary Jane Watson. But I don't even know Mary Jane Watson. Really? Then how come your Aunt May introduced me to her when I was at your house last time? It was bad enough to find Liz Allen coming to see you also. How many more girlfriends do you have? Look, I can't help it if my aunt has been trying to get me to date Mary Jane. I never even saw her. Oh no. Well, you ought to open up your eyes, Casanova. She's very hard to miss seeing. And another thing, boy, the only thing worse than a hot-tempered <laughs> female is a jealous hot-tempered female. To which Betty female. punches Peter in the face, Michelle Gonzalez style. <laughs> uh, no, not really, though. <laughs> I was about oh. to say, frankly, you know, Peter, I want to introduce you to PMSing hot-tempered female and pregnant hot-tempered female. And I think you might uh, revise uh, just how hot-tempered a woman can get. But anyway... Well, Jonah doesn't like soap operas, so he comes out of his office and tells them to shut up and orders Peter to leave if he doesn't have photos to sell. Peter wonders how he'll get his costume back from Jonah now. He decides that nobody can ever reform, so he slips a spider tracer into Foswell's hat for no reason. Now he can tell. <laughs> like, literally, there was like, no, he just like randomly thinks, you know, Foswell's probably still a bad guy, you know, because people are inherently bad, like Steve Ditko told me, so let me slip this tracer in here. Because <laughs> Ditko, Ditko's always right. To argue for him for just a second, this isn't the first time he's had this thought. He's been suspicious of Foswell ever since he saw Foswell come back. That's true. Yeah. Well, according to the um, according to Stanley, he's at school a few minutes later, which I don't know how that's possible. It's a very I large mean, few. Like he, he, just he the elevator, the just and, the and elevator said, ride, like to the to, to to the lobby, must have taken a few minutes. 
I was like, he, he went to the elevator, or he went to the, uh, the closet and said, energize, and then teleported there a few minutes later. <laughs> so, out of the frying pan and into the fire, he goes from Betty yelling at him to Flash yelling at him, because if you remember, Flash was waiting around to beat him up last issue. <clears throat> well, look who's here, old puny Parker. Finally got tired of trying to hide from me. Get off my back, loudmouth. I'm in no mood with your for your muscle-bound mirth today, and the same goes for your gang of grinny hyenas. Hey, who are you calling hyenas? Look in the mirror and you'll find out. How about that? He's a regular Bob Hope today. Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. Hospital case tomorrow if he doesn't clam up. <laughs> it looks like the mouse is trying to turn into a lion, huh, Flash? Okay, you brainless baboons, you've laughed at me for the last time. And we see from Principal Davis's window, Peter Parker just lunge at Flash and the gang like bowling balls. <laughs> Uh, I, I, can I can I interrupt uh, the uh, the podcast uh, version of Mel Blank here uh, to make a couple <laughs> of observations? Uh, one, I, I just thought where Peter says, "Get off my back, loudmouth! I'm in no mood for your muscle-bound mirth today." And the same goes for your gang of grinning hyenas. I mean, this is this is classic Stanley overriding. I mean, who in the world talks like this? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and but you know, the thing is, as much we make fun of Stan. I've got to, you know, at least his his stories have a lot of dialogue. You know, I'm thinking of like when Bendis and Bagley were doing Ultimate Spider-Man. I keep I keep seeing Bendis basically giving Bagley a half a sheet a half a sheet of paper full of some dialogue, sending it to Bagley, and Bagley goes, "I have to make 22 pages out of this. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just have about two different panels of Peter and Mary Jane, and I'll have them talking back and forth, and there'll be the issue of Ultimate Spider-Man." So, anyway. <laughs> I just did award-winning Bendis. <laughs> and you could hear all about this on Teenage Wasteland, John's Ultimate <laughs> Spider-Man podcast. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and, and then another thing. I mean, look how these guys are dressed. I mean, I'm assuming... I know the bow ties. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm assuming this is a public high school. First of all, first of all, what teenagers wear suits to a public high school? And second of all, it's kind of like I'm, uh, you know, when Harry Osborn later is calling Peter Parker a dork, and Harry's wearing a bow tie. I'm thinking, <laughs> you're, you're, you're saying that. Peter Parker is a dork, and you're standing there in a friggin' bow tie. You know, I'm thinking the only person who's dorkier than that is Paul Simon, but the, I mean the other Paul Simon, not the uh, not the Gar- uh, Garfinkel and whatever Paul Simon. Anyway, and then b- b- before I'll shut up here, I know. Wait, 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 wait. How many other Paul Simons are there? There's only the two that I'm familiar with. Paul Simon is the same Simon that uh, Paul Simon as the Simon and Garfunkel one, isn't he? Well, then there's the, there was the Illinois Senator Paul Simon. Oh, okay. He was the one who wore. He was the one who wore. He was the one who wore the bow tie. Uh, you know, and uh, Al Franken did an impersonation of him Saturday Night Live, and yet I'm dating myself. But anyway, anyway, the last point I want to make before I'll just shut up for the moment is Principal Davis gets all upset. He sees Peter Parker crashing into these bullies, and he's he's just he's appalled. What could have come over him? And I'm thinking, Principal Davis, you know what a prick Flash is. You know what a, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm Principal Davis and I'm saying Peter Parker deliberately attacked that group of boys, what took him so long? You know, and then I would just kind of close the blinds and saying, not seeing it, not seeing it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, he know everybody knows. We we said before how the teachers love Peter. You know, oh, you're going to get a scholarship someday. So. Logic must say he wouldn't have done it for no reason. Peter's not like a drug addict. He wouldn't have done it without a reason or anything. Look well, at that kid. Crying out loud in issue eight, they're like, guys, 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 let's do this in the boxing ring. Like the teachers are like encouraging it. 
I've watched you for a long time now, boys. If you have problems, settle in the boxing ring. Yeah, they don't really care. Yeah, I'm surprised that, like, Mr. Warren didn't come out again with Coach Smith and, like, tell him, no, 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 come on, here, you guys both take guns, take seven paces, and turn around. (laughs) And and then they purposely give Flash the gun that's not loaded. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to take care of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> good, good stuff, good stuff. Oh, dude. I do love the next panel, though, where Liz is trying to hop. I think that's really good art. The way she's yes, like, trying Liz. to. Stop it, stop it, I say. Holy smoke, what am I doing? Another minute, I might have exposed myself as Spider Man. And another uh-huh. case of Peter being paranoid that if he does anything physical, people are just going to automatically know he's Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, he can't catch like a falling glass of water without someone thinking that he's Spider-Man or, you know, that God. Or he has to pretend to be afraid of spiders because if he has an interest in them, people might automatically conclude that he's Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> Still, this Liz, I'm sick of you always protecting that milk sop. Protecting him? It looked to me like he was doing fine against all you bullies. It's lucky Liz came by when she did. Lucky for them, that is. To which I say, yeah, but not lucky for the readers. <laughs> it's okay, Liz. Don't worry about me. That bird brain doesn't scare me. I knew it! You've become as bad as flashes, And I thought you were different. He will be when I'm through with him. I'm through with both of you! I never want to see either of you again! <laughs> now, see... This this bothers me, actually, about Liz, because when we met her, she was not only in Flash's cheering crowd, but she was also, you know, full of, you know, teases and, and sharp words for Peter herself. And now that she started to like Peter, I never got any indication before now that she was actually going to start not being nice to nerds. But now it's like all of a sudden that she, you know, likes Peter. Now she's pacifist and everyone be nice to everybody. And I just, I don't know. I don't get there's, it. There's no real reason for her. Like, when did she pray thing? through at the altar? I, 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 I don't know. Well, there is that point in issue 12 where, like, Peter insults them and Liz says to Flash, like, we deserve it, Flash, after all we've done to him. So, like, you can take that line, like, we deserve it after all we've done to him as her saying she realizes that her past actions are wrong. She's seeing the light now? I don't know. I mean, she's whatever. I, I've, I've always kind of interpreted it. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, I, I, I will uh, take absolutely nothing and try to turn it into a tortured explanation. But I've, I've kind of rationalized it as Peter beginning to remind her of her stepbrother, Mark Raxton, because Mark mm-hmm. is a scientist of some repute. Uh, of course, he becomes a scientist of ill repute when he becomes a molten man. But, uh, you know, Liz apparently has always adored this guy. I mean, she uh, quit school and w- became a nurse just to take care of him. So I... I'm thinking that you know when she you know she started when she sees Peter she started to see uh, her stepbrother Mark so that's kind of how I rationalized it that and she's just a huge slutty tease but anyway uh, <laughs> oh yes she is yeah and, and that and I'm thinking you know when she's walking away crying I'm thinking well don't worry Liz you're Tiger Woods type and he's free now so um, you know hey go for it. Well, I mean, she's through with them. I mean, how many times has she broken up with Flash in the series at this point? Like, Flash has got to be thinking, okay, yeah, we'll be back together by third period. He literally, he literally says, like, I'll see if I can find this. Turn on the old chum for her. He's like, he, he, I, never he's see see either, I never want to see either of you again. And then next class, all three of them sat next to each other and were lab partners. It was really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> And then Peter notes, first Betty is mad at me, and now Liz, what a dumb one I am. Hey, Parker, the principal wants to see you on the double. You're in for it now. 
<laughs> so Peter goes to the principal's office and Flash and his gang leave and Flash makes an excuse that he's going to go find Liz, but he's actually going to go, I guess, make sure that Peter doesn't rat him out too much to the principal. And to Flash's surprise, Peter doesn't. He takes the whole responsibility and Principal Davis says, I'll let you know my decision later, Parker. As Peter walks away, it was my fault. I should have known better. So Flash goes in to talk to Principal Davis, and he says, Mr. Davis, I think you better hear the whole story of what happened. Parker really wasn't to blame. I'm glad to hear you say that, my boy. Come in and we'll have a talk. Crime Master decides to take over crime the old-fashioned way by shooting gang leaders and threatening the gangs. This works a lot better than throwing pieces of paper in windows. So Jonah goes to his country club where everyone talks to him about how awesome he is, including a guy in a green business suit and a weird haircut. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to back up a little bit here. Uh, the panel where the crime master is uh, slugging the other thugs, and he says, now will you accept me as the kingpin of the city's gangs? And I'm thinking, you know what? We don't see him in this panel, but Wilson Fisk is in this room. And he's thinking, what am I going to call myself when I take over the gangs? Am I going to call myself the Big Kahuna? Uh, no. Mr. Big and Wide? No, uh, <laughs> you know, Mr. Chrome Dome. No, I don't like that either. Tons and then, of right, fun. <laughs> yeah, and then Prime Master is going. Will you accept me as the Kingpin? And the, then the light bulb comes on. Yeah, Kingpin. And there you go. The origin of the name. That's oh, where Tales oh, 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 of Spider-Man issue twenty-six. <laughs> the abandoned, the abandoned script, as told by J.R. Yeah, so like I said, um, it, it's a green business suit, but in some of the reprints, they change the colors. But yes, everyone's talking to Joan about how awesome he is, including um, a guy with a weird haircut and a green business suit. Now, now we'll get to Tootsie Roll Head in a second, but um, Jonah does say he's the largest newspaper publisher in town. And I just thought that that was interesting, because like, up till now, I've had the impression that the Daily Bugle was just one of the papers among all the many papers. But now he's claiming to be bigger than the Times or the Daily News. And I just – I thought that was interesting. Well, you know, he is J. Jonah Jameson. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean Jonah would say that he's like, you know, more powerful than, you know, the he's incredible – than Jesus. Combined. Yeah. He would probably still say that he's the pe- uh, largest newspaper publisher in town even though his newspaper doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So – He'd probably say like New York is the biggest state in like the United States. Norman Osborne. Trying to put suspicion on Foswell. Yes, is this the first time he's actually spoken? Yes. <laughs> I think cool. so. Yeah, because no. Oof. Well, it's okay, Jr. I, and I and I made a and I remember making a note to ask you about this. Do you believe what oh. Ditko said about how he um was deliberately planting Norman in those club scenes? Because until Ditko did that like weird essay a few years ago where he said that he deliberately planted Norman in those scenes, I thought that that. You know, Osborne-haired figure was just another Dicko stock character that got retconned into being Norman. Well, you know, that's a good question because, um, oh, and that invite you know invites a whole you know debate about you know who was the Green Goblin originally intended to be. I mean, I, I don't know that we've had any reason. I mean, because really we didn't know because everyone was under the assumption that you know Ditko quit because he and Stan quarreled about the Green Goblin's identity, and in fact John Romita claims that Stan said as much. But Ditko is now saying that we couldn't possibly have split up over something that infantile. And and yes, I was playing the Green Goblin as uh, an acquaintance of Jonah's and then brought his son in and they looked alike, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Ditko's crazy. 
but you know, as, as as Michael Bailey so eloquently pointed out uh, when he guest starred, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think we've ever heard him pull a Kirby, you know, where he's claimed to create, have created virtually everybody in the Marvel and DC universes. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it was just that Ditko was so silent for so many years, and, and speculation ran rampant, and then he finally started talking, and. Uh, I, you know, I, I personally, I got to take him at his word. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, he, yeah, he never, he never, like, there's no reason to, it, it, I mean, you hear people come out and say, oh, I did this a long time ago, all the time, but there's no reason to disbelieve Steve Dicko, really. Besides the fact he is kind of weird. It makes the last Green Goblin story before this one, issue 23, it makes it read a lot differently if you take Norman as being the Green Goblin in those scenes it just adds a lot of depth to that and here i see what he says is one of your reporters is this fellow foswell who used to be a big time criminal himself is it wise for you to employ such a notorious character like (laughs) he's trying to shift blame onto foswell because even though foswell is not the crime master or the green goblin shifting blame onto foswell shifts it away from himself that's awesome i have that but it it allows him to have a little, you know, oh, Foswell, he's such a notorious character. He, he, he. And Joe, you have no idea who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's also like a little... And Norman would do that. <laughs> well, some homework that I did was uh, you only at this point, you've only seen the Country Club in Green Goblin stories. So that is a bit of a coincidence that adds credence to that theory. And I checked in issue 23 like to see if like there was any characters who showed up again for this in issue 26. And Norman's the only one that I can see that's, like, in both of those appearances. So maybe Dicko made, like, a conscious effort to do that. And in uh, the original version of issue 26 that I'm looking at on the CD-ROM, they have Norman in the Osborne hair in a blue suit – and not blue suit, in a green suit. In the Marvel Tales team-up that I also have in front of me, they recolored that uh, red and gave him black hair. Now, it's also interesting to note that Norman Osborn basically only appears in Green Goblin stories. We saw him for one panel in 25. But the con- that's, oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yes, that's but right. But the dialogue yeah. there almost feels like it's a setup for a plot device of the next issue that just ended up not being used. They talk he, about, he talks about how, you know, I'll have that list for you published in the paper tomorrow or something like that. Oh, yeah, and that's right. It's just random. He's there, then he's gone. It has nothing to do with the story. But it's this sort of line of dialogue that could be followed up on in the next issue. It just wasn't. Well, that I is interesting really... because, you know, 23, 25, and now 26, the same weird-looking character with the, the strange hair has showed up. So, you know, maybe maybe Ditko, you know, like you're saying, maybe Ditko, you know, is telling the truth. So yeah, It's entirely possible that we're, we're he's really not, not giving things. the lie about this stuff because, I mean, he's a recluse, so it's not like he wants the glory. Yeah. The only thing that's kind of strange is that, you know, to me, because I for one for a long time, I was laboring under the delusion that maybe Ned Leeds was intended to be the goblin, which that, you know, obviously turned out to be completely phony and, and would have been editorially sloppy anyway. Uh, but uh, making Ned the, Leeds the, a goblin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but um, the um, uh, the thing with the oh, hell, what the hell was I? Oh, Norman. Like when Norman, you know, try, kill, tries to kill Strom or whatever, I mean, he's pointing a gun, a rifle at him. And I'm thinking, God, that's that's not very Green Goblin-esque, you know, to try to shoot somebody with a rifle. And uh, and then he, you know, so I don't know. The, the other side is that after these two issues, we're not going to see Norman again until 37 and 38, and then he's unmasked in 39. 
So And that's after we met Harry. And and we're also not gonna see the Green Goblin again until the unmasking story in thirty nine. So I, I Well that's the like, the way the story ends, he he really like like he he's really, really upset. It's like next time I'll really get back at like he's really upset. So I think that was intentional to like have the next story be a big Green Goblin story. To me, in my personal opinion, the only reason not to believe Steve Ditko is because of all the speculation that's run rampant over the last few decades. And there's every reason to uh, to believe what he said in his essay. Yeah, and I'm just rereading these. It's like I, I, part of me thinks that like I I don't think that they would put something so deep in like the '60s books. But I mean, you know what? It's there. I mean, there's coincidences after coincidences that we're popping upon. I mean, in the original printing, they gave Norman Osborn a green business suit. That's uh. Yeah, I know that that's yeah. like you know not not a MacGuffin or anything like that, but it, it's entirely possible because of like who who Steve Ditko became after he left Spider Man and who Stan Lee became after you know Marvel got really really successful that we're just not giving these guys enough credit as as creators. I say we go. We, I say we, I say we give them the credit. We give them a big old heaping spoonful of credit and a bowl. So Spider Man still needs a costume, so he goes to a costume shop. <laughs> Unfortunately, he runs in, he runs into a costume shop owner who's like just as bad with jokes as he is, and they go into a bad joke off. Oh, it gets really ugly. He asks him if he wants to take the Frankenstein suit because they're selling like hotcakes, and he says, "Hotcakes I can get in a restaurant." Okay, son, suit yourself. No pun intended. <laughs> oh man, the puns are just flying back and forth here. Look out, guys! Someone might get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Peter swings away as Spider-Man, but to his surprise, the cheap costume that he bought at the rinky-dink costume shop is cheaply made and is coming apart. This is really, really shocking. <laughs> well, I think it's funny. You know, I mean, in a panel, uh, he makes a comment that luckily they make it out of these new fabrics, so one size fits almost anybody. Are you guys familiar with the Spider-Man adult costume? You can probably still get it on Amazon or whatever, uh, but it comes with a mask and then like the, a one-body costume are you guys familiar with that at all i think because, so is it? because i have yeah. one <laughs> and and there's and there is a rather ghastly picture of me and and dressed as spider-man and my at that time five-year-old daughter dressed as one of the powerpuff girls and i look like the earth x spider-man in that it is so hideous and i'm thinking no i'm sorry one size does not fit all but that's what that reminded me of when he said that one size fits anybody. It was that rather horribly fitting, ill-fitting costume. So. Are there pictures of these? And, the, and that picture will be unearthed, and it will be the album art for the episode. It probably is out there somewhere, because I actually posted it when I ran a, um, I ran a, a feature called um, uh, Theater of the Absurd. Uh, and, there was, <laughs> you know, and there was a picture of me and Spider-Man at the World of Wheels in Evansville, Indiana, back in 1987. Which you know, back then I had curly black hair and a mustache. Which obviously I have, <laughs> I have neither black hair nor a mustache these days. Um, but yeah, I had that, that picture probably floating around somewhere. If you go to the Wayback Machine, you have to the go take a look. To your browsers. <laughs> well, not right now. And as the gang is checking their browsers, Spider-Man is checking the rooftops, and he follows the signal to Frederick Foswell's apartment while he's webbing his costume to keep it together. He and the Green Goblin randomly miss each other like ships pass through the night. Spider-Man's inside of Foswell's apartment looking around when the Crime Master shows up outside the window and sees a figure in the window of apartment, decides that this figure will always be a threat to him unless he's eliminated. 
And as we learn next issue, not everything is as it seems here. The Crime Master fires his gun, but Spider-Man's Spidey Sense saves him just in time. He leaves the apartment, and the Crime Master keeps firing. Using the same type of intelligence that Liz Allen displayed in issue 17, Peter decides that since he doesn't know who this person is, it must be the Crime Master. He's actually right, but the logic is still odd. Yeah. It could be anybody. He's not, like, it could be the masked marauder for all he knows. Well, yeah, it's like, oh, I don't, know who this, I don't know who this person is, so it must be the crime master. Yeah, you're right, but I mean, it's like, that's really big shot in the dark there. I mean, it's, there's lots of criminals. What were you doing? <laughs> Spider-Man the bullets and realizes that the crime master has run out of them. He uses the opportunity to charge towards him, but before he can reload, he is surprised by the crime master's gas gun. It Have you ever known anybody to do, like, the bullet counting in movies? Uh, my dad I actually have seen that... I actually saw that in my first kid. <laughs> we watched uh, when we when we would watch action movies with lots of you know guns going off. My dad always used to count the bullets, following to see you know if the shooter would still have rounds left, if the movie was being accurate, or if they were just you know firing off as many bullets as they could. And I I, I don't know how he knew the capacities for all these different kinds of handguns, but I guess everyone has to have a hobby. As Spider-Man tries to get the jump on him, Crime Master pulls out his gas pin or gas gun. And sprays him in the face with with might as well be like mustard gas, is just like choking off the air. So while he uh he's well, Spider Man's trying to, you know, get get his bearings, Crime Master just hauls up and punches him. You didn't think the Crime Master would be an easy conquest, did you? But as he punches him, he thinks to himself, punching him is like punching a stone wall. His body is a mass of beef, sinewy muscles. <laughs> which is, which, is, which I always thought was funny. Um, yeah, because it sounds like the Crime Master's starting to get turned on now. So Yeah. <laughs> Like, wow, he's hot. <laughs> That's why they call him Lucky Lewis. <laughs> oh, yes. Lord. I don't even know what that means, but it sounded good. <laughs> well, <laughs> as Donovan mentioned, Crime Master can't beat him in hand-to-hand combat, so he decides just to take advantage of Spider-Man's disorientation to punch him off the roof. Doesn't bother to look down and assumes that Spider-Man's dead. Because yeah. after all, he has other matters to attend to, like the Hypnocoin! So he assumes that Spider-Man's dead without actually going to look for the body. You know, very um, Bond villain of him. <laughs> While Spider-Man's falling, he pulls off his mask to get some air. Re- then he realizes that he's falling to his death. And what's, what must be like a really long fall, because he has a time to like come to all these conclusions. And he saves himself with some of his webs. He then realizes that the crime master is probably Foswell, which means to us, the reader, that he probably isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the rule in fiction is that if, like, the protagonist suspects someone of being the killer, it usually isn't that person. But again, this was the 60s. Storytelling was different, so... Yeah, if, if, if it was always like that, then the next Green Goblin story is like, the Green Goblin tapped me. He must be my best friend's father. He goes to pick up Foswell's trail at the Bugle. Spidey spies on the Bugle, and he sees Betty looking at a piece of paper and decides that this piece of paper can't possibly have anything to do thousands of pieces of paper that a secretary for a major metropolitan newspaper will have to go to. No, it must be from that blame Ned Leeds. So he sneaks into Jonah's office and is disappointed that his missing costume isn't there. Jonah enters the office and him and Spider-Man tease each other somewhat, but Jonah's not in the mood and he gathers that Spidey just wants his costume back, so he tells him that Smythe has it. So Spider-Man leaves and as he's leaving, his costume is still coming apart, so he put some more web on it, including webbing his mask to keep it from popping off. And as Gerard Delatour would say... You could almost hear them cocking that Chekhov gun. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now I've got a question. Okay. In in the last last page when Spidey was, you know, monologuing as he was falling, you know, which to me, if you're falling to your death, you only have time to say one word, you know, and, um, you know, like Bill Cosby said, <laughs> first you say it, then you do it. Exactly. But he nearly he, he nearly suffocates. You know, he has to pull his mask off because he nearly suffocates. So what does he do? He webs his mask to his face so that he can't get it off. And it's like, uh, you know, makes no <laughs> sense. Point. Makes no sense. I thought he was but suffocating because of the gas and like and he was like putting it off for the air and with the gas out of the equation like it wasn't like he was suffocating because the mask was too tight but then next time he gets shot with gas what's he going to do yeah next time he gets the crime master again he'll rip open the mask rip open the mouth or something Spidey searches Foswell's apartment again and sees a map with a waterfront area marked off he goes to investigate some criminals reveal via exposition that the crime master is holding a big meeting there tonight and then but now to show you that you can't ever take things for granted in our tales, a new character enters the scene, a stool pigeon known only as Patch. And he's actually got a patch on his eye and a fedora, and he's in a thumb booth. The mobs are going to meet at the old desert P on the west side. And as the cops say, good work, Patch. This is the tip we've been waiting for. We've got to move carefully. There's no law against men having a meeting, not even if we know they're underworld big shots. Um, what if it's, isn't it like against parole or something? Like some of these guys got to be out on parole. That's got to be against their parole at least. Right. I would think so. Like this, like there's no law against a bunch of criminals having to meet. There's got to be some law. Come on. The live monkey agrees with you. Yes, he does. And you could buy him. He's probably 1895 live delivery guaranteed. Okay, go ahead. But if we keep them under surveillance and play our cards, right, we might get enough evidence on them to put them away for good. Okay, you have your orders now. Take off. Yes, sir. They don't say that, though. <laughs> it was such a motivational speech that there was a yes, sir, coming. The goblin and the crime master argue some more. You can't do this without me. The whole plan was originally mine. You try to squeeze me out, I'll... You'll do nothing, not as long as I have the proof of your real identity locked in a safe deposit vault. If I'm ever found dead, the police will open the vault and learn who... Hey, what? You cheap double-crosser! The Green Goblin doesn't have to resort to murder! There are other ways! Ooh, he was hiding, so that didn't think he's back. <laughs> because I assume he doesn't think the way he talks, right? You know, so yeah. he probably thinks, you know, rather he's, you know, very sophisticated, so, oh, well, the smoky exhaust from my jet glider will cover me so that he won't know where to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> No matter how tricky you are, a bullet can still get rid of you forever. I, I, you weren't trying to kill each other, but okay. He's throwing stun bombs, but I'm in luck. His own smoke is hiding me from him also. I'd better hold off. If I should accidentally kill him, my secret will be made public. Uh, uh, however, this doesn't quite jive with my actions in Untold Tales of Spider-Man number 25. I should be... <laughs> I should be thinking to myself, yeah, you dumbass, go right ahead. Show everybody what's in your safe deposit box. You know, I don't care. <laughs> anyway. Ha, you're running away. I scared you off. Sure, like a tadpole scares a tiger. Where do I come up with this crap? <laughs> I've just decided to let you live a little while longer. Oh, God, now I'm resorting to 1940s cliched movie uh, lines. But you'll still never take over the rackets without me! You know, I mean, no, I, no that's right. I've got to fight Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett, and, uh, you know, and Anna Kornikova for all the rackets. But um, anyway, <laughs> uh, 
There are other ways to stop you, and the goblin will use them. Awesome. Awesome. Hooray. Oh, <laughs> oh, you guys are desperate for entertainment, I tell you. <laughs> the goblin sees Spider-Man poking around and decides to attack him, which, oddly enough, is not picked up by his spider sense. I know, Maybe all what those... the heck? Maybe him seeing all those gang leaders there, like, threw him off, like his spider sense was going crazy. He's like, oh, it must be because there's a bunch of bad guys here. Two seconds after being attacked, Spider-Man remembers that he has spider sense and decides that he'll use it to keep track of the pumpkin bombs that are being flung at him. Although his webs block an explosion, the force still knocks him out. The Green Goblin moves into a mass Spider-Man, but then remembers that he's about 13 issues too early for that. Remember Spider-Man webbing his mask shut? Yeah, that Chekhov's gun just got fired. The Green Goblin makes his presentation to the gang leaders and asks who up to his rule. The first thing I want to say is, from now on, I'm the boss, the only boss. And if anyone has any objections, let him speak now. All right, Crime Master, I'm speaking up. This is a Green Goblin saying that you're about to have the shortest reign on record. And Ooh. hopefully nobody is paying attention to how just big my ears are. <laughs> oh, God, or they'll laugh me out of here. The shortest Here's rain? A... Will this be a dark rain? Oh, look, it's, look the it's the Green Goblin. With Spider-Man. Spider-Man. He captured him. What's gonna happen next? Well, look at the next issue box. Next issue. The secret of Frederick Foswell will be revealed as you thrill to one of the greatest battle royales. So join us again for Marvel Tales issue 22, which is where I was reading that box from, or for those of you at playing along at home, amazing Spider-Man issue 27, or Essential Spider-Man issue volume 2, or Marvel yes. Masterworks volume whatever, and don't forget your webbing. Whenever I think of the Green Goblin's huge, huge ears, I always think of this panel, because, oh my god. The better they hear you with, my dear. Now, I don't think I've seen ears this big on a character since the Clone Saga, uh, that uh, dreadful uh, Maximum Clonage Omega. Omega, when, oh yes. When, when probably about 30 different artists wrote, drew the Jackal 30 different ways, you know, and some of them had his ears reaching to the clouds or something like that. So That was an abomination. Mm. And, my first home, and my first Spider-Man comic book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could only get better from there. <laughs> Now, um, just just one little mini point is it? Um, it's not battle royals; it's battles royal. But that's just the grammar not seeing me coming out. We can continue on. This was definitely example of good classic Spider-Man in action. What do we think of the Crime Master? Um, Dicko, Dicko, Dicko! Uh, character creation at its most Dickoiest. The fedora, the business suit, the the criminal angle, like the the gangster angle, the weird mask that you know he would put on the question and mr a and characters like that i mean this is when you think of steve ditko art you think of characters like the crime master says i yeah that was this story was very crime noir especially that part where spider-man's in foswell's apartment and then like you see the gun coming at him and stuff that was you know fired through the window that that was like very crime noir oh yes or as crime noir as a silver age stan lee story can get <laughs> now, this, is like, this is like the most like a like um old school like like in terms of the fifty or the sixties comic books, it's more there's not like in the era of superheroes, this is like the most old school pulpy kind of comic book I think Spider Man's had in, in the run so far. The costume plots continued and I like 
I like about these early stories that like what happens in one issue will bleed into another. It's not like these stories are just all self-contained one issue things. Like he got rid of his costumes last issue in the fight with the Spider Slayer, and that's affecting what's going on in the next two issues. In fact, it it affects things right up until the graduation issue. You know, he's on the quest to like either get his costume back or get a working costume. I like that there was some like repercussions from there, and it added to the drama of the story. It does beg the question, if Aunt May didn't throw the costume out, what did she do with it and why aren't they saying? This was addressed um, in a backup in one of the annuals in the 80s. Aunt May was actually using the costume for a costume party at Mrs. Watson's house. Oh, my Lord. Hell? No, I'm, 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 I'm lying about that. Uh, <laughs> First of all, that's a waste of time for a backup issue. Second of all... That's a waste of an idea. <laughs> That's very, very frightening. No, but, like, they never explain. Like, it's, like, this big thing. Like, what did Aunt May do with the car? And Peter checks. She didn't throw it out. So, like, where is it? I thought they, they did explain it, but I forgot what it, what they did to it. But they never explained that? She takes it out with her Uncle Ben memories and cries herself to sleep with the, you know, sadness. Maybe, maybe she does what uh, Jonah did in Spider-Man 2.1, uh, the uh, DVD version. You know, she puts <laughs> it on and, you know, hops up and goes, pew, pew. With the uh, the web shooters, so with, with the cigar in her mouth, is that a deleted scene? I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah, look up on YouTube. It's it's, it's awesome. In fact, um, that was like one of the early spoilers I read, like before the movie came out, was that J.K. Simmons will be wearing the Spider-Man suit. And if you remember in the trailer, there's that part where like Harry unmasks him, but the trailer cuts off. So there was speculation that ah, oh, it's not going to be Tobey Maguire under the mask when they take it off. So I figured that through some hijinks in the movie, it would be J.K. Simmons because of that spoiler. I but I was wrong, and, and I saw the movie, and there was no J.K. Simmons in the theatrical cut wearing the costume. So yeah, it kind of stinks whenever they put stuff in a trailer or use it in marketing to tease you, and then it's cut out from the last cut of the movie. Uh, speaking of Jonah, though, who drew him in that Mary Marvel Marching Society uh, advertisement in the back? Because that does not look like a Ditko. Uh, no, Jameson. that's not Ditko. Um, is that Don Heck, maybe? Mm. I think that could have been Ditko, maybe. It looks like it was a little rush, but that could – I could either be Dick. I think that might be Dicko, but uh, Is, it could not be. I don't know. I, I think that's a little too clean to be uh, Dicko, and I don't mean that like Dicko's dirty, but you know what I mean. Like Dicko's Jonah was a little like gruff and like, you know, his hair was More a little wrinkled. messy. Yeah. The hair looks too big to me. It looks like Wolverine hair sticking on his head. I mean because you guys would tell if it was a Kirby drawing. Why would Kirby draw change on Jameson? It, it doesn't look like Kirby to me. It looks like it might be early Ramita, but I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it. It doesn't look like Ramita's face is always much more broad. Yeah. If it was, if it was, uh, if it's not Ramita Kirby or Dicko, it could be Joe Orlando or Bill Everett or uh, uh, Don Heck. So everyone's really angry in this story. Like Peter goes to the bugle, Betty yells at him, then Jonah yells at him and Betty, then he goes to school, and like Flash and the gang are yelling, and then Liz yells at him, and. Peter Ooh, gets so yeah, Peter gets Dicko at, at his happiest. Oh yeah, yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter gets angry. Like by the time like he knocks Flash out, like he's not only like punching Flash, he's like imagining himself like punching Aunt May. So because uh, <laughs> she didn't give him back a costume, <laughs> he's he's punching Betty, he's punching Ned, he's punching Jonah. He's just like <laughs> he's he's imagining all of them on Flash's head. I think this is one of those stories where you really can tell that Steve Ditko did the bulk of the scripting because not only is it a, a, a crime noir story, but it's a story with a lot of like tension and anger. Because we always talk about how how happy things get when Ramita comes on the book. So, I mean, this is like this is like Ace. Like this is a, this should be like a Steve Ditko visionary kind of Spider-Man story. Uh, there was one scene when 
it's page 17 at the top when the bat when the thugs are starting to show up and a second panel guy says i brought some of my muscle men just in case what's the delay isn't the crime master here yet <laughs> and the other guy's like what's so funny uh, uh nothing that's the way i would have written it but you know whatever that's superior to Stanley. That's, that, that's like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's like you know, you're really you're really pushing this whole "I'm a bad guy" shtick, aren't you? <laughs> We're the evil mutants. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, Magneto refer- never refers to himself as evil whenever Stan's writing. That's actually a point that Stan made. He would call them the evil mutants in dialogue from other characters and in the narration, but he never had Magneto calling himself evil because Magneto thought think- he was just in what he was doing. I thought that that last page would have been a lot more effective if, like, the crime master would have been like, and you should listen to me because I killed Spider-Man. He's dead. I threw him off. And then, you know, that way when Goblin came in carrying the body of Spider-Man, it would have been <laughs> like, a lot now? more embarrassing. Oh, oh. Really? <laughs> yeah, that would be good because, yeah, last time crime master saw Spider-Man, he was falling off a building. And that would that would. Yeah, he says it the first page or something like that. It would help to discredit him for the beginning of the next issue where he, you know, pretty much gets laughed off stage. Yeah. You're the crime master. I mean, Spider-Man's unconscious. So the crime master, you know, if the Green Goblin says, "Oh, I killed him," and the crime master could say, "No, he fell off a building. You're just bringing his, you're just carting his dead body into here. You know, I'm the one that killed him." So you know, there's there there could always be that that he cut. Of course, then that would fall apart when Spider-Man comes too later on. But oh well. <laughs> and then like the people, we like hold it, Spider-Man. Before we fight, we we, we you got to settle something for us. <laughs> Who knocked you out? <laughs> and then he probably like. <laughs> Oh, it was it was Ringo Starr, of course. Your spider's gonna knock you out. And all of a sudden, Ringo Starr becomes the new kingpin of crime. No. <laughs> or Sophia or somebody. Yeah. Or, uh, or Tuesday Weld, because she's gotten plenty of, of mentions in these comics. So Flash Thompson uh, coming clean to Principal Davis. Thoughts on that? I thought it was big of him. It's one of the first indications we've gotten that Flash actually does have a heart, besides you know the part of him that beats for Liz. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like he's not a bad guy. He's just a guy who doesn't like Peter Parker. I think in issue and nine, the there's even like a point where he like wants to make nice with Peter, but then like it goes bad real quickly. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's not, he's not, he's, he, he, I remember what a man he was when we fought the other issue. Like, hey, Peter, I want to talk to you. And Peter's like, I'll go away, uh, Thompson, or whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, he was actually headed for Liz. And because he says he, over, he, actually, he accidentally overheard Peter confess. I don't, I don't know if he, I don't know if he uh, went to spy him or anything, but. Um, well, it's I mean, not, I was being facetious when I said that. Like, my interpretation of that scene was that, like, Flash, like, legitimately was going to come clean the Davis because he felt bad. I mean, I never thought about the way that you did that. Like, he was looking for Liz and just happened over here. Hmm. Maybe you're right. I, I never, I never read it that way. That's interesting. Did we see Norman Osborn on the next issue? Yeah, he's at the in, club. In his uh, club, he's, oh, the, the club issue. Okay. So, do you so think that while uh, Harry's in high school, Norman's still doing all of her, his girlfriends? <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> oh no! I, I will say this: I don't think Harry had any girlfriends in high school, so that was—I uh, guess that would be one saving grace. Like, like, like hey, hey, uh, Dad, I'm bringing over um, um, uh, Jennifer. She's gonna help me with my science project. Okay, oh, let yeah, me go shower wait. first. Jen- Jennifer, hey. come over. I, I need to find my pen. <laughs> he brings his pen downstairs, Dad. Oh, that's how the sword it is. <laughs> the spider's web does caution us against jumping to the easy conclusions with the identities of the crime master and the green goblin. Because, you know, Stanley wasn't obvious enough at trying to make you think it was Foswell. Now he's trying to tell you not to jump to that conclusion. So what uh, what letters do we have here? 
somebody actually brought up what JR and everyone else has been bringing up forever, that why do the people in the high school dress like that? Why is everyone <laughs> Even like, business? Yeah, so, like, maybe this wasn't normal for the 60s. Maybe, like, <laughs> maybe these people are actually dorks, so... Yes, well, I mean, obviously, Sam, Sam Lee knows dick about high school kids, so, like, he'll, he draws them in suits, and it's one thing for Peter Parker to dress as a nerd, but to draw, draw kids in bow ties, I mean, not even Richie Cunningham would, draw, would, would dress like that. Yeah, Steve Keys, he wonders why Peter Parker has, like, a closet full of blue suits and always wears a vest and tie everywhere he goes. Vincent C. Stewart wrote a letter. He says, Dear Stan and Steve, I just heard the MMMS record. It was pretty funny, but what happened to Steve Ditko? He I especially wanted to hear. He wasn't even in <laughs> Marvel Tales Annual, because they, they actually printed you know bad quality black and white photos of all the bullpen in the annual, but Ditko wasn't there. He says, First I couldn't see him, and now I could not get to hear him. You know, I'm beginning to wonder about Ditko. Are you trying to hide something from us? Hmm. <laughs> a man who draws weird, a man who draws only unusual stories, fantasy like Doctor Strange. I wonder, does he have two heads? Or four arms? Or three eyes? Is this, is this why we never see him? Maybe he's from another planet and cannot speak our language well. Is this why we couldn't hear him on that record? Maybe he's a super intelligent gorilla you found who can draw well? Maybe he's six inches tall? Is this why you have not revealed him to the world? I must say Ditko is really becoming a mystery. Nope, he's just a pretentious recluse. Yeah. Poor man, like he'll, he'll never, he'll, uh, he'll like, it just gets worse from him if he's still wondering. Like, I wonder what Steve Ditko's up to. Let me find him. He's a what? <laughs> he's not doing what? And then we had Barry Kamen. He actually took Marvel to task for being so flippant in their letters column responses. And so Stan gave him a flippant response. As Stan tends to do. As Stan tends to do. Because they're always joking. And I guess Barry got fed up with it. Richard Obeyed complimented the cover of number 22, which was the. Circus of Crime, where all the circus people are there and you can't see Spider-Man. He thought that not having the hero on the cover was original, and I did too, so yay, Richard, you're right. And we are told that there will be a second Spider-Man annual in July, so look forward to that in a couple of episodes. Ty Bazzoni explained in detail why the Masters of Menace from issue 22 sucked. And, <laughs> and Steve Gerber, Steve Gerber. Uh, from 70s uh, Marvel fame, suggests that Spidey or the Torch should show up in a Patsy or Millie comic. I'm, 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 there's no way to know for certain, but I'm guessing this is the same Steve Gerber who would do the man thing in Howard the Duck. Sure, why not? It's, it's Eric Larson's father. Yeah. Okay, so just for the record... <laughs> we were lied to by the British! Two days ago, the, um, or a few episodes ago, that Terry Larson was Eric Larson's father. He was totally joking, and he meant to clear that up in the episode and completely forgot. So if um, if you believed him, I, he was a lie. I thought he was lying at first, but then like everyone was like, really, really? I was like, oh, I guess he is. And our ads this month include two more triumphs from Marvel. The first is Fantastic Four number 40, which continues the saga begun with their loss of their powers a few issues before. I believe they get their powers back in this issue. And it climaxes in an awesome fight where the thing just wails on Doom. Uh, and, like, Dr. Doom, like, swears vengeance against the thing for having laid hands on his person or something like that. It was really, really cool. There's also uh, Journey into Mystery number 117, where a mission leads Thor face-to-face with the corpse-strewn battlegrounds of Asia. Okay. That was probably trying to be timely. Or, you know, Atlas. And, um... Two more triumphs from Marvel. Daredevil number eight introduced the Stilt Man, destined to be mocked and ridiculed for years to come. 
And Sergeant Fury number 19 has the sergeant seeking revenge for the death of some chick named Pamela, the previous issue. And, you know, they're in World War II fighting again. Hey, listeners, Betty Brandt here. My husband, Ned, used to be at work all the time and never home with his pipe, his paper, and me like he was supposed to be. This was not how our marriage was supposed to work. But thanks to Roll to Play, we have so much gaming stuff for our games that Ned never leaves the house now. He's home all the time. With me, like he's supposed to be. Sure, the Daily Bugle's pissed, but I'm not. Thanks, Roll to Play. So, moving on to our next book of the episode. Amazing the greatest Sp- title ever. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 27 was released on May 11th, 1965, with a cover date of August, and bears the title, Bring Back My Goblin to Me. For no reason at all. Like, is For that no reference to something? Yeah, Bring Back My Bonnie to Me. Oh, okay. Because I was like, I've always been like, why in the blue heck is this title this? Bring back, oh bring back, oh bring back my goblin to me. Trivia time. What was the first song that the Beatles recorded professionally? Um, Eleanor. My Bonnie. Was it my Bonnie? No, my. Yeah, it was my Bonnie. It was. It was when they were in Berlin. It was like their first professional through a record company release. They had to go to Berlin to get one. No, uh, they were they were playing clubs in Berlin. That was back when Pete Best was still their drummer. They were back in a guy called Tony Sheridan. And he was like the main vocalist on the record. Now, this marks exactly one year before Norman would unmask Spider-Man, which would mean a lot more if we didn't know that he would just forget his identity later. But um, they're they're always saying that, you know, for the last year or two, Steve Ditko was, you know, not talking to Stan and just sending in his art. And this is the one year mark. So I, I have to wonder what exactly the relationship was between them at this point, if it was as bad as you know, rumors have said. It might have been, like, because we, we said before, this is such a Steve Ditko, um, you know, in his prime kind of story. It might have been a situation where he just did whatever the heck he wanted and Stan just rolled with it. The, the, there's a line, in, like, at the end of this issue that's very Steve Ditko, and I'll mention it when we get to it, so yeah. Yeah, I don't really feel like Steve is just, you know, phoning it in until, like, just the last issue or two of his run. They're the only ones I really have problems with. But um, but we'll talk about those when we get to him. Like you know what would be funny? We never see the crime master's face. Like maybe he just like left that up for Stan to do. <laughs> like ha, huh, you know, I'm not even gonna show his face. Let's see if Stan remembers who he is. <laughs> nice. So like Stan's like scripting the dialogue is uh um Nick <laughs> Lucky Lewis. Yeah. Not to be yeah. confused with Lucky Lobo from three months earlier. I was gonna say yeah. So the cover has Spider-Man in chains, surrounded by goons. The crime master is in the crowd, and the goblin is hovering above on his glider, cheering on the fight, as we said before last issue. But even though Spider-Man is chained up, he's still managing to knock out some fellas on both sides of him. So, yay Spidey. Open up to the splash page, and we pick up on last issue's cliffhanger ending. We're at a pier warehouse. The goblin is holding an unconscious Spider-Man, confronting the crime master while all the gangs of Manhattan surround the stage. One caption recaps us on the current situation, and the other reads, If you dig an action-packed old-fashioned cops and robbers mystery yarn, this one is for you. 
But even if you don't like this kind of story, read it anyway. It may just change your mind. And this story is, of course, edited and written by Smilin' Stan Lee, plotted and drawn by Scowlin' Steve Ditko, and lettered and gift-wrapped by Swingin' Artie Simek. Oh, instead of S. Rosen this time. Oh, yeah, no, S. Rosen. It's Artie this time. He got tired of hiding his name, so they fired him. Uh. Brutally, brutally and swiftly. The thugs, of course, still can't unmask Spider-Man because his store-bought mask is webbed down. No, it's because of the psychic mind block. Oh, that's right. No, that hasn't happened right. yet. It, it was retroactive. It like it, it, it affected all stories, past, present, and future. <laughs> even, even in it, real life. It, it affected, like, reprints. It affected yeah, it the affected fans. Everything. Now nobody yeah, can read I, Spider-Man as who they are anymore. And that is absolute. That is no less absurd than what really happened. <laughs> <laughs> With the red birds opening car locks and all sorts of things. Uh, yes. So while not not to mention the the uh, the flying the sci- the physics defying bricks. So anyway. yeah. And the power of love. Oh God! <laughs> oh no! We better we better go along with this. Or we're going to change it. But that doesn't give me oh, a yeah, because that never happens. <laughs> goblin is gloating over the crime master as the gang members swear to follow the goblin. After all, the goblin was able to take down Spider-Man. Our new stoolie friend was it Louis the stoolie from a few issues back? But this one's Patch. Our new stoolie friend Patch is in the audience, hoping the police show up soon after having tipped them off earlier. No, he says he wonders if they got his tip, and why is and he, he wondering? He's on the phone with them. It's not like he sent them a letter. <laughs> He's like, I wonder if they got my. T- you mean when you gave it to them and they said okay? You wonder <laughs> if they got that? Like, he wrote him an email. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I got to backtrack a little bit here. Uh, it was, I just find it just you know, particularly in in the current day context, that all these mobsters. When you th- you know these guys, there's probably a lot of hardened killers and sitting around, you know, standing around there, and they pledge their allegiance to a guy in a green and purple costume wearing a pink purse and little <laughs> purple curly-toed booties, you know, and they're pledging their allegiance to him. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, great, what happens when they get to, like, a crime summit in Las Vegas or whatever, you know? And, you know, the mobsters all start comparing notes, you know, and one mobster goes, hey, Sal, who are you working for, you know, these days? Oh, I'm working for Don Corleone. That guy looks like Marlon Brando. Oh, that's really cool. Hey, <laughs> Bugsy, who are you working for these days? Oh, I'm working for that guy, you know, that guy in the green and purple costume with the pink purse and the little curly uh, purple booties, you know? So, uh, just, <laughs> are you really trying to tell me that you work for a guy who calls himself the Green Goblin? So that's just it's just one of those things you look back, you know, forty years hence, and th- and just but that's one of the great things about these stories—they are just so patently ridiculous, but they're still enjoyable. I mean, we we, we laugh at them, but but because we still love them. I mean, it's not like we're going to look in forty years, we're going to look at one moment in time, and we're going to say, you know, that was somewhat charmingly, you know. Um, uh, you know, awful. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I mean, that's genuinely awful. I mean, we look back here, and you know, I mean, it's yeah, it's tr- it's awful, but it's a good kind of awful. It's an awful that we, we love and enjoy. But so, I mean, that's. I mean, am I right? <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're totally right. Well, I, I, I love the second panel on page two with that picture of the goblin. Just like you can't take this dude seriously. <laughs> look at this man. Well, and the fact that Norman Osborn turns into like one of the most psychotic persons ever. Just like this, it's hilarious. Yeah. So if the crime master would have partnered with him, like all the way through, would they have like? Can you imagine the crime master trying to invade Asgard? 
Okay. <laughs> uh, sure, why not? <laughs> well, he is a he is a crack shot. I mean, you know. Didn't we learn that in the previous? <laughs> He's like firing bullets at these Norse gods and like gas. And... Yeah, he has a little green gas going. I'll get you with my sleeping gas. So there just then, just after you know the invasion of Asgard, Spider-Man starts to wake up. And despite the chains holding his arms behind him, he is agile enough to knock out some guys with jumps and shoulder butts. And while he fights, the police show up and they start helping him out, giving him a moment alone to strain against the chains and bust them off like he's one of the supermen of America. Kryptonite no more. This is followed by two pages of awesome Ditko fighting action until Spidey's store-bought costume starts riding up again in the waist and sleeves. This is embarrassing, so both the Crime Master and the Green Goblin decide to take pot shots at him, but they eventually do flee the scene, just as the rest of the gang surrender to the police. And we never see the Green Goblin again. These were, you know, out of curiosity, when you bust the chains, isn't this the super chest expansion powers you guys were talking about? In the, <laughs> exactly. Yes, it podcast? is. Yeah, yeah, I kind of thought of You know, and I also like, you know, when the cops come in, you know, like one guy said, you know, gives the classic, you know, stay where you are, you're all under arrest. And the other two guys just come in swinging. I mean, this is obviously pre-Miranda, you know. I mean, they just blow by, <laughs> you know, and they start punching goons, you know. And I'm thinking, well, how many, you know, I mean, how many Supreme Court decisions ago has this been? So, you know, again, you know, it's it's the 60s. You got to love them. So. Yeah, it's, it's rare that you see guys, the police just, like, scrapping with, with the crooks. Like, I love it. They, they just, like, beat the crap out of everybody. <laughs> and, and, nobody a, pulls, and nobody pulls out a gun. clubs or, like, guns or, like, yeah. tasers. <laughs> They got a sign that says no guns allowed or whatever. Oh, okay, you know, and so they just start punching each other. And, you know, nobody sits and wonders, well, why don't we just pull out a gun and shoot these guys in the head? The 60s Batman, like, fight music. <laughs> it's basically like that. It's basically like, like a big 60s Batman fight sequence. We give up. We had it. We can't fight you cops and Spider-Man. Naturally, you punk. You only outnumbered us 10 to 1. So they all surrender like good little you know, losers should. And Spider-Man elects to pursue the Crime Master instead of the Goblin because he doesn't think he'd be able to keep up with the Goblin's glider. So the Crime Master goes below the docks, and I hadn't realized until he actually went below into the water they were actually on a pier this whole time. You know, not like in the middle of Manhattan somewhere. They said and, last issue that they were going to a pier. Right, but I wasn't reading. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, as we'll learn later when the crime master gets killed, I mean, Stan wasn't reading it either, you know, because uh, of some of the contradictions. So, I mean, when you say you aren't reading, I mean, well, yeah, Stan wasn't reading either. So yeah, you're not supposed to read these things. <laughs> Just look at the pictures and ignore. But it, is, it is art. This is, again, Steve Ditko at the height of his game. Maybe not like the cool fantasy action that he's had with the Sandman and stuff in the past, but definitely this is great crime noir uh, you know, fist fighting action. So the crime master does go below the docks and he enters the sewer system because that's always a good idea. And he has a little practice session with NJ Fleming, Yubi Waza Master. Boys, man, I'll help you master Yubi Waza. And then he fires some gas fumes down the sewage tunnel, presumably of the same type used last issue, because, you know, that's the shtick. He's the crime master. He uses gas. Spider-Man fashions a web helmet reminiscent of the Mark I Iron Man suit puts it on over his head to filter out the gas. But by the time he wades through all the gas, the Crime Master has made his getaway. In a large sewer. 
I've always been amazed that, at just how large the sewer systems are drawn in cartoons and comics. Are they really that big? Is the sewage system really that huge under the streets of Manhattan? I've heard that know. it's not. <laughs> like I've heard that like sewers are actually like really small. Like, but I mean that like that it's an urban myth. But I mean I I couldn't tell you. Like in Ninja Turtles, like there's like all these like rooms in the sewer where like like you have an apartment. Yeah, I like, be able like to actually do that. Move your whole family down there. You never have to pay rent, right? You just have to you know smell the crap all day. I just remember the first episode of the 90s series where he's like, he's like crawling through the sewer, like complaining. Oh, yeah. The sewer's like larger than a skyscraper. <laughs> really? In that, in that first, it. yeah. Turns out that the Mole Man's lair isn't really this huge underground empire. It's actually just the New York sewers. Well, so, I think we can probably safely assume that neither Stan nor Steve uh, did any personal research down in the New York City sewers. So... <laughs> You know, just like they obviously never walked into, you know, the campus of a public high school and saw how kids actually talked or dressed or anything like that. So, you know, the Marvel method is the guessing method. Nice. (laughs) So Spider-Man does exit the sewers through a manhole and he dashes back to the pier to see if any cleaning up is left. But the police have taken care of it all. So he goes back to Foswell's place, certain that he's mixed up in the whole affair somehow. But the apartment is empty. But he finds evidence that Foswell has come and gone, and he also snoops around and finds, dun-dun-dun, a false compartment in the closet. So he is now certain that one of our masked villains is actually Frederick Foswell. Which means that he isn't. Which means that he isn't. (laughs) So he runs to Jonah's office, because there's a lot of running around in this part of the story. He figures it's fair to warn Jonah about Foswell's involvement in the gangs. But Jonah seems 100% certain that Foswell is straight and is investigating the gangs as a reporter. Then, the thick plottens as the crime master appears on a nearby roof, ready to take out all three of Spider-Man, Jonah, and Foswell. Because he thinks that Jonah is the Green Goblin, as we said earlier. Redcon spoiler alert! Redcon spoiler alert! So, Foswell is not the crime master, we, we have now discovered. And that only leaves the Green Goblin if we look at this through a new reader's eyes. The police shoot the crime master, and we don't see how this goes down, so I'm just going to assume that, like, the crime master did something, like, try to shoot them, and they were trying to stop him, or something else extreme. Well, because... he, sa- he says, I-, I can't let them tape me as he reaches into his jacket. Okay. So the police didn't just shoot him because they were bored. Yeah, it's probably suicide or... by cop. Gotcha. Yeah. Like, like Stan Carter. Or maybe maybe he's like, my arm is itching. He's like, he's got a gun! And it's like, you know, like like 10 minutes of them just like using all their bullets on him. <laughs> and the crime master dies before he can gasp out the name of the Green Goblin for all of us to read. But why Boy. would he have had to? Where's the safe deposit box? I mean, he just said in the previous issue that he had the Goblin's idea in a safe deposit box. So all they got to do, uh, you know, that should have, you know, uh, someone should have then, when the crime master died, gone, opened the deposit box and revealed the Green Goblin's identity. You know? Okay. Okay. Here it is. Here it is. He thinks that J. Jonah Jameson is the Goblin. So the person that he knows that's going to, that's going to reveal the Goblin's identity from the secret safety deposit box is actually Norman Osborn. That's the one that he confided in that he could have revealed it if he'd have died. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, that's pretty good, actually. I mean, and, Nor- and Norman probably wrote about it in his journals, like he did everything else. Everything else. Except he, contra- except he lies in his journals. <laughs> talks, <laughs> That's true. Talks about how he wishes he had something to do with Aunt May's death, and talks about his dead son Harry, and how mad he is about his dead son. And 
But wouldn't you lie in your journals too? Only son, his only son. Right. Let's let's not forget about that. Oh yes. Well, because he knows he knows like the last group of journals he left behind, Roderick Kingsley found. So he figures, ah, you know, I better not, you know. So I'll just make this stuff up as I go along. It's a fool. Nobody'll know what I'm really writing or really talking about. That would actually be a very good untold tales if, like, you saw, like, the opening of the safety deposit box, then Jonah's accused of being the Green Goblin, which they mention in issue 28 when he's talking to Aunt May. So, yes, maybe between issues 27 and 28, there's a story where Jonah, that hasn't been written yet, where Jonah's accused of being the Green Goblin. We're, like, writing the second season of Untold Tales as we go. Yeah. <laughs> Get on, Busiek. So, minutes later, after discussion of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, in Jameson's office... Spider-Man gets more and more confused by the minute as the police congratulate Frederick Foswell for his assistance in catching and identifying the crime master, who turned out to be gang leader Nick Lucky Lewis. I knew it! And you know, it's kind of funny. In real life, when a villain is unmasked, he isn't always the butler or the one you suspected. Aw, shucks. Stan, sometimes he's a man you didn't even know. I'm like Electro, when he was Max Dillon. There you go. Like, they have to repeat every time man unmasks someone in a Stanley Steve Dicko story. Like, wow, I've never met this person before. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? <laughs> Isn't it ironic? If this was a fake story, which this is, readers, <laughs> it would be the butler. <laughs> Let me say that every time we unmask a stranger. <laughs> See, get it? We're being clever here. Huh? We're turning the genre on its head. <laughs> the irony alert! It's off the scale! It's over 9,000! Boy, if I saw that happen in a mystery movie, I'd laugh about how corny it was. And yet, well, this happened in a mystery comic, so we can laugh about how corny it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, this is really corny, but it's actually real life, isn't it? And then, like, you and know, like, he points to the reader. <laughs> that's like Betty Brant when she's like, "Oh, if this was a movie, I would have just made it in time." When she's trying to, <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man actually apologizes to Foswell, which, to be honest, I wasn't entirely expecting because usually. Peter, like, runs away from misunderstandings. He just hopes that they're going to work themselves out or knows that they won't but doesn't care and just leaves. Somebody apologizing in a Steve Dicko comic? Huh? Jameson, <laughs> Jameson urges the police officer to arrest Spider-Man, but the police officer refuses because, of course, he has no grounds. Spidey remembers his camera back at the pier, and he makes his exit. Do you remember his camera back at the pier? Because I don't remember his camera back at the pier. Uh, I'm In pretty fact, sure yeah, it's on the first few pages. Of this comic? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah it's on page five. John Wilson and Stanley. Oh, there it is. Okay, this is my mental process, and um, I guess I'm just going to look dumb on the air again. But he got to the before he even got to the pier, he got knocked out. And then he got chained up. And so I was looking back to see where he when he set up the camera... I didn't look at page five because I figured he would have done it before then. But never mind. I obviously That's no excuse. <laughs> don't know what I'm talking about again. So. The host of the show. Hey, I just bring you guys together. Y'all are the ones who make the, sh- make the show good. <laughs> so <laughs> Spider-Man goes. His suit starts riding up again, which has got to be uncomfortable. But he ignores it because he's running low on webs. He quotes some random commercial jingle that I don't recognize. But he can't find his camera. <laughs> Does anyone else recognize that jingle that he quotes? I'll leap up to the wood. Like I, I, th- I think I think it was a cigarette commercial. I think Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. <laughs> that, that was back, you know, when they actually allowed cigarette advertising on TV and things of that nature. So, 
Joe I, I is going to go about, back and like find out that this was a cigarette reference, and he'll like ban this comic from being reprinted. <laughs> I actually saw an old school black and white Flintstones commercial with with Fred Flintstone singing, "Winston, it's good like a click click cigarette should." So that's that's all kinds of messed up. Actually, they could reprint this and just change the jingle to something about you know like Frosted Flakes or something instead. <laughs> Spider-Man jumps. Spider-Man. Um, great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But he can't find. I gotta his say camera. though, this thing is really pointless. I mean, like, oh, he can't find his camera. But oh, he finds it by kids. Uh, He's just filling pages. I would imagine at this point. Yeah. I like how the spider sense is going off. I mean, you talk about something that's so inconsistent. You know, the spider sense. He doesn't. It doesn't go off when the Green Goblin is about is dro- about to drop a gl- you know heavy metal object on the top of his head. But it does go off when these bunch of teenage goobers are saying, "Oh, look at this camera." So uh, you know, <laughs> you know. Again, I mean, you know, no one knows how the spider sense really works. And in fact, didn't Sam Raimi pretty well ignore it in the last two Spider-Man movies? It didn't even bring it up. It, it went off like once each movie instead of like every time it showed up. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's, that's really bad. So the, when, when the spider sense does tingle, he ducks out to hide under the pier until he knows who it is. And, and as we just heard, it's, some kids. He doesn't by, duck he, to hide under the pier. He trips. Well, no, he, he he tries to duck to hide under the pier, first. but then he trips over the fall, the rotting wood and falls into the water. Um, so the kids are hanging out, playing with his camera. He gets out of the water. He has him to cough it up to them, and then swings away. And they have, you know they sort of you know, quietly tease him. Huh, we're you and Torch fans. So much for Spider Man. But having been in the water and now drying out, the cheap costume is shrinking on him even more. He manages to pull it off with some difficulty before it can suck him into the microverse. But he takes it with him. And I'm assuming this is going to pay off later. I thought I remember something where he like uses the costume for something in like the next couple of issues. But not in this uh, issue, because I, this, I wouldn't... What's that? Is this the costume he uses when... No, wait a minute. The Spencer, Spice, the Spencer Smythe story was earlier, wasn't it? When he used the costume and stuffed it with hay and Jonah and mask it. And, you know, yeah, that, that was... was that, really yeah, that was an earlier story. Okay. So he, I was going to say, maybe he uses this, uh, maybe because because more, Miles Warren finds out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, so maybe he breaks into his house and takes his costume and gives it to Ben Riley to when they fight, when Ned Leeds' life is in danger, and that's where he got that costume. That's no, really, they, really reaching. No, because... Um, it wouldn't fight Ben Riley anymore. There's, there's an explanation for, for where they got the costume um, in like that jackals and juxtaposition uh, thing from, I think it was issue 153. JR, help me out here. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, I don't remember the exact issue, but I'm yeah, it was. Someone wrote like an explanation for all the unresolved. Tried to explain away all the unresolved issues of the uh, the first Clone Saga, saga. But it wasn't Jerry Conway. That's kind of funny. I mean, Jerry Conway wrote it all, but then the guy providing the explanation wasn't Jerry Conway. So you know, I figure he's you know I'm, uh, he's just pulling it out of his ass. But uh, but even if they found. Miles Warren's journals or whatever were, you know, you have to remember that the High Evolutionary actually went back and rewrote all of Miles Warren's journals so the <laughs> Animen wouldn't realize. So even if, you know, so not only do we have, you know, Norman Osborn's unreliable journals, but now we have the High Evolutionary going back and rewriting Miles Warren's so other than this, every every evil mastermind randomly writes journals. Like has, it, has Doctor Octopus ever had a journal slash diary? And you know, oh, Octavius's journals—they're all about me or something. It's like that. it's all going to be like blogs now, and like the High Evolutionary like hacked into Norman's like f- 
hacked into Warren's Facebook account and like you know rewrote his blog entries. Awesome. <laughs> so after all of this retconning, <laughs> as Spider-Man is developing <laughs> his pictures, he gets the idea that he could sell the photos to another paper besides Jameson. It's possible that he got the idea from the live monkey sitting so mischievously on the next page. But Peter does go to the Daily Globe to sell his pics to Barney Bushkin, first appearance, the picture editor. But Bushkin badgers him so much on how he got the pics that he runs off rather than get himself in trouble. The Bugle scoops the identity of the crime master, but the Globe runs the pics of the fight. Jonah takes a few attaboys at his club meeting, and Norman Osborn is there. Except in some reprints, they recolor him to be a black man. <laughs> I'm looking at a reprint right now, and he he's black. Really? <laughs> no, yeah. Norman, Norman needed a, he, the heat was on, so he he went blackface and he, he didn't know oh, what no. the choice. <laughs> oh, Harry, we're going African American tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now the, the heat is on. <laughs> They're gonna open that vault. I was actually thinking as I was reading this today, and, and that, but just in the last couple of issues, we've had a marked increase in the number of black people that are on the page. And for, uh, for yeah, I was wondering all that, the because the issues are in uh, black and white. I was like, these are awfully heavily inked people. Wait a minute. Black people? I've never dreamt. So. Yeah, because they were, they were actually uh, done with inks and with grays rather than you know brown skin like they would do later. Uh-huh. But I just thought it was kind of cool that you know we're finally getting away from the all-white cast that we've had for two years now, or the entire history of comics, depending on how you want to say it. Well, I don't want to paint Steve Dicko out to be some kind of, you know, like, 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 uh, racist or anything, but I would figure, because I know because Stanley brought all of that, um, civil rights activism later on when the Ramita issues went, but I would figure that since Steve Dicko was doing the plotting, he wasn't really, uh, keeping in mind of all that, but huh, I guess he was. Maybe he saw that none of his characters were ever getting drawn, so he actually, like, did ink the art so that they looked black, and that's why they were done that way. I don't know, but definitely cool. What about this uh, Norman? Is there anything we can read into the interaction from Norman here? Norman's um, jerk. It's too bad the Daily Globe man. Uh, what am I doing reading Norman lines for? <laughs> well, but he's not going to sound like Willem Dafoe here, though. I mean, oh, uh, he's true, not going to have that cool voice. He's just going to have. Oh, it's too bad the Daily Globe man. No, no, <laughs> Willem Dafoe. Um, What's the movie called? Um, it, it's just Nor. You know, Norman knows what buttons to push. I mean, you know, Norman's a jerk, and uh, you know he knows what buttons to push. So he's just going to throw it in Jonah's face and uh, have a little fun at his expense. Yeah, I did the last page though. Like the very last page, he, he goes crazy. But I was kind of wondering if maybe he was like trying to prod out of Jonah who the photographer is, because that might be something well, he could use. But at this point, Peter Parker's outed as the Spider-Man photographer. We we talk, we. Oh, that wasn't on a podcast. I talked to you about that on the phone, John. But like, but, but there's that Untold but, Tales issue where like. But this is the Globe. This is the Globe, and his his uh, his name is not on the byline because Jonah actually thinks they. Uh, I'll be hanged if they don't look like Peter Parker's work. Okay, but then why would Norman be trying to get him to reveal who the Daily Globe photographer is then? Yeah, my my logic falls apart. <laughs> but Jameson's face on a uh, bottom. I'm page sorry, 17. John. I feel like I'm calling you out like the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I, I obviously I had thoughts as we went along, but obviously I wasn't paying enough close enough attention to the comics. That's okay. It won't be the last time it happens. Jonah decides that he needs to show Parker some appreciation before he loses all access to his photos. And speaking of Peter, he can't find his confiscated costume anywhere. So he decides he'll have to start from scratch all over again after looking 
in just about everywhere that he could think. Does he actually go into Aunt May's room this time? I guess. She's not home. Yeah. Boy, if Flash Thompson could see me now! Right, with a needle and thread. Uh, speaking of the old bat, she gets home pretty shortly after that. All sad that Anna Watson couldn't hang out and shoot the shizzle with her. So Peter asks her to go to a movie to cheer her up. And we wrap up with several short little scenes. Frederick Foswell reveals to no one in particular that his role in this whole adventure has been the stooly named Patch. Dun, dun, dun. I love how he's just like, you know, talking to... He's thinking... While he's getting his bag of costume out, he's thinking. But then he switches to spoken word. He's like, now, with the crime master dead, it's safe for me to return to my apartment. My little... And he's just, like, telling no one that he's, you know, Patch. Oh, yeah, we didn't mention it in the recap, but that's who the crime master thought he was shooting last issue. He thought he was shooting uh, Foswell, not Spider-Man. Oh, yes, yes. And the Green Goblin curses Spider-Man's existence for fouling his plans. Once again, my brilliant plans have been thwarted by Spider-Man! He has proven to be my greatest threat, my most dangerous enemy! I'll never rest till I've destroyed him! I'll lay low for a while. I'll wait <laughs> convinced that I've given up my crime career till he's virtually forgotten about me. And then, when he least expects it, I'll strike. So and that's gotta, exactly what he does. We don't see the Green Goblin again for ten issues. Which makes you think that Stan Lee has forgotten about him as well because Stan forgets about everything anymore. You know, even, he, even his own hero's last name, as we, you know, Peter Palmer was uh, the name of the hero and part of Spider-Man number one. I got to ask a question here because I'm looking at the Marvel tales and, you know, I don't know what's been recolored, but Norm, when Norman is show in the club showing Jonah the globe, he's wearing a purple, light purple suit and a blue tie. And then when you see this shadowy figure, you know, uh, ranting and raving, it's also a person in a light purple shirt and suit and a blue tie. I mean, is this the way it looks in the original uh, version? I mean, because that pretty well indicates it's the same the same guy. Or did they just kind of recolor it to, uh, you know, now that they, they know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say? They've recolored it, and I'm trying to decide if the colors match or if, they, or if they're not the same. In the, in, this, in the club, he is wearing a sort of greenish-brown suit and then a definitely green tie. And then in the other scene... The lighting is different, so I don't know if that explains it, but his suit and tie are definitely not the same color as they oh. were a couple pages earlier. He changed, because man, it, uh, you know. Jonah like this issue, something on him on the club. In this issue of Marvel Tales, it's definitely the same outfit. So like, okay. I guess they just they just you know, a post uh, a, a, a retcon of uh, of a different kind. <laughs> and finally we wrap the story with Peter and May having a great time at the movies. And as the shades of night blanket the silent city, we leave you with this thought. Isn't there just a little of Peter Parker in all of us? I suppress him with alcohol. (laughs) And where where the hell did that come from, anyway? I mean, it's not like he was... (laughs) doing one of his monologues or not can't can't get a date or don't have any money or whatever he's gone to a movie with aunt may isn't there a little you know it's like so in what regard is there uh, is, is he a little, <laughs> and she's just know? gotten through getting on to him about how you know watching action pictures aren't healthy for you it's not it isn't healthy for a boy like you to have too much excitement even in a movie 
And isn't there a little bit of Peter Parker in all of us? <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, you know, that's, that's a real pointless observation to make. Well, maybe it has to do with the fact that he ate, like, three bags of popcorn, which I guess would have been a lot smaller back then. But, like, I can't even get through one bag of popcorn at the movies, like, nowadays. They're so big. So another Green Goblin great. Aside from issue 14, which just had so much craziness going on with it, um, I've really been enjoying the Ditko Green Goblin stories. I think he has redeemed himself well. It's a very sinister-looking mask on that last page. Yeah. Those ears will eat you alive, dude. They will eat you alive. Big as his eyes. Well, you knew it was it was Ditko's idea to make the Green Goblin a, a crime figure anyway, because uh, uh, Stan Lee's original idea, according according to Ditko, was that the Green Goblin was going to be a spirit released from an, an Egyptian sarcophagus. And uh, Steve said, well, that sucks. So, you know, he turned him into a guy with a costume. So just a, a little, uh, little, a little needless and worthless trivia there. Didn't they do that in the uh, 60s cartoon? They, they, they changed up his origin some, somehow. Well, I don't, think like the, I don't think the people who made the 60s cartoon even read the friggin' comic book. You know, because the, 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 the Green Goblin in those is, is, is trying to trying to learn magic spells. Or, you know, he's trying to be Harry Potter or something. And, uh, <laughs> so, Yo, what's it, Norman? My favorite is the one I was watching um, on my computer a few days ago. Looking at all the people at the Gloomagogo nightclub, he's like, oh, there's the city councilman, there's the mayor, and oh, look, there's Captain Stacy, Mary Jane's uncle. Awesome. Awesome in his failure. Awesome in his failure, I was gonna yes. Say, I was going to say, um, like, on the last, uh, at, like, in page 1718, Dick, <laughs> Jim is in space. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, Foswell, he was just a cog in the wheel. I was a master planner. Hint, hint, hint. The entire <laughs> and, character and, and of the is, is in that country club thinking master planner eh? <laughs> there we go there we go but see this is another thing apparently i'm thinking too stan probably like when he was creating all these villains he kept thinking oh god what am i going to call somebody here so he goes he oh yeah i used the name i used the term kingpin once okay i'll call this big fat guy the kingpin and then you know he, he he's trying to think of a name for the dr octopus who's not to be revealed yet and he comes back and oh there's master planner so they're not, they're not even like that that description like the master planner that's the name that shows fears and criminals hearts like wait what Master yeah. Planner. Master Planner. Another case of Stan not reading the comic at the beginning when Spider-Man wakes up, he's like, "Ah, oh, the gas finally wore off. The gas didn't knock you out. It was an explosion." Oh, that's right. Because he um he got gas in the sewers and then like had you know like another few hours of activity before. He says the gas which knocked me out, which what knocked him out was a pumpkin bomb. Yeah, the gas. You know, it's funny because I, that reminds me. I was just reading because um, there's a book. I don't know. I mean, I I, I bet. I bet Bertoni's got it. Uh, comic creators on Spider-Man. It was edited. You know, Tom DeFalco did a bunch of interviews. And actually, Stan, the interview with Stan is actually kind of interesting because he talks about where basically he just let Ditko plot the stories and he just wrote in the dialogue. But he also mentions that he had so many different things going on. He was writing so many different stories at the time that he did. He just plain forgot things and he kept confusing. He kept confusing uh, plot points. So that's you know that's how he came up with the no prize because people kept stumbling over his uh, his boneheaded mistakes. So you know I, it was you know I guess something he readily admitted that he that he did you know is he just he kept forgetting things and when where he was and what character he was writing and, and things of that nature. 
Yeah, but that's, that's, that's something you always hear from a guy who tries to take credit from people. But he Stan did manage Smith. to get out some, you know, some really good stories, even though he messed so many things up. Yeah, Stan's kind of a, taking a different approach these days. I, I remember definitely er, earlier on, you know, it was like he created the Marvel Universe by himself with one hand tied behind his back. Uh, if if you ever read like the original uh, origin of Marvel comics that was written in the seventies, that's basically how it, it comes across. Stan himself had all these brilliant ideas, and he just kind of doled them out to artists to, to, you know, dramatize them for him. And then finally, you know, in the eighties and nineties and two thousands, he starts to say, "Well, yeah, somebody, at, you know, Ditko actually did design the costume. Yeah, yeah, he really was the co-creator." <laughs> so, 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 do you think that uh, Stanley were like? I'd like, like, legitimately tried to, like, because uh, we, we talked about this before. Like, do you think he was trying to, like, shift off credit from away from the artist? Because I think that looking back on these issues, like, right now, I don't think he's trying to do that. I just think that's kind of a misconception. Do you, do you, you fall know, on the other side of that? Uh, boy, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think in, in just, you know, uh, you know, some things I've read were the you know because stan was always the front man you know stan was always out there speaking and stuff and and you know some some people speculate that that was marvel's you know or martin goodman's deliberate attempt you know to make it look like stan who was a salary employee was the guy who came up with all the ideas so that no nobody would come back and say you know or you know so that they wouldn't be on record as actually giving credit to either kirby or ditko or somebody else for coming up with an idea you know, so and that was how Marvel deliberately, deliberately did it. You know, that that's that that's one conspiracy theory that that's that's how they how they handled it. But then but then again, if you talk to you know, also at that time, who else would Marvel have sent out to talk? Because, uh, you know, Ditko was a recluse. You know, I mean, to this day, Ditko won't have his picture taken or speak on you know record to anybody on camera, and even uh, a friend, a good friend of Kirby's, Mark Evanier, states that Kirby was an awful interview, and that he would just ramble and and make these nonsensical statements. So, you know, I I don't know what the truth is. I mean, I really don't. So, you know, it just Stan Stan was out there doing all. All the speaking, but apparently that's because Stan's the only one who could who could who could actually do it. So I don't know. I have this uh, I have this book on uh, it's a celebratory book on John Romita Senior that I got a couple of years ago, and uh, there's there there's, it's a it's like a book full of interviews, but there's this one big interview where he talks about a uh, um, I think it was Don Heck maybe, but he references like an artist really getting upset that this I think it was Don Heck because he wanted Don Heck to be more sensationalistic. And extravagant like uh, John Romita or Kirby, and he kept on pushing him to be more excitable in his art, and the guy couldn't take it. But John Romita said that he, the guy thought that Stan was just thought, thought that he sucked as an artist, but John Romita saw, was trying to tell him, no, no, Stan, Stan knows you're good. He just wants you to, to push to be as, as more exciting as he knows you can be. And he thinks that a lot of artists got the misconception that Stan Lee was just a guy trying to out make money when. When he always saw Stan as a guy trying to um, push what he saw in them to make a like a better a better altogether product like he had with Kirby and Ditko, so it's, it's, it seems like like the misconceptions of the word with these guys back in the day. Well, I mean, Stan was I, I was, like I was reading something. I mean, Stan when Stan first came in to Timely Comics at the time, I mean, he you know obviously he was he got the job because he was Martin Goodman's kid cousin, and he actually was assigned to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. So, 
you know, I can see where Kirby all these years just thought of Stan as an interloper and never gave Stan credit for anything because, you know, I mean, who was this punk kid, you know, who just came in? I mean, you know, Kirby was Kirby and this is just Martin Goodman's, you know, third cousin who needs a job. Um, Mm. So, you know, I think that was kind of what was, you know, ate on Kirby for a lot of years. Uh, Was he just, you know, that's, you know, he didn't see, that's how he thought Stan was. But I don't know, it's always easy to, it's it's always easy to pick on Stan because he's such a I mean he's such a big target uh, and you know there's all you know all this talk about artists and royalties and you know now with the the Kirby family trying to sue and um, uh, things of that nature you know it's it's easy to make Stan a um, a bad guy uh, when the truth is probably just a, a lot more complicated but you know it's just too easy to pick on him and uh you know and, and again he's i mean you know stan's brought part of it on himself by some of his uh you know claims over the years which you know leads you to believe that you know he was the mastermind behind everything yeah, we weren't the there we don't planner. know but yeah we're, we weren't there so it, it's it's a lot of speculation and, and going based on you know things that we've heard and this was 50 are, years ago <laughs> they're, yeah they're only as believable as the memories of the people who you know have colored the memories with their impressions and everything else so so well, and as I said, and as I said, you know, no one thought at the time. I mean, no one recorded this stuff for posterity, or you know, for example, Kirby's original Spider-Man pages—they're lost to time. Nobody thought to save them because no one thought they would be, you know, the, that a bunch of geeks like us, fifty years later, would be talking about this stuff as it were Shakespeare, you know. So, <laughs> you know, it just no one thought to save this stuff. So, I mean, I would love. I would love to see Kirby's original Spider-Man pages. I mean, that that's a would be a great historical artifact to have. But we have almost no idea what Kirby's Spider-Man looked like, except for a crude rendering by Ditko. You know, so you know, it's it's just a shame that all this stuff was lost because nobody thought of it as being important at the time. The time when they were doing that story, anyway, it wasn't like this was you know going to be like a success like the Fantastic Four. This was a B story in the back of Amazing Fantasy 15. Uh, you know, soon to be canceled title. So, I mean, yeah. why wouldn't they throw it out? This is true. I mean, I'm trying to think of like what the equivalent of Amazing Fantasy would be right now, like of what's out there. Well, it's it's kind of similar to, I mean, similar thought process, totally different genre, but um, the old Doctor Who TV shows from the 60s. It, around 1974, I want to say, the BBC went through and trashed all of their uh, records of the old black and white. 1960s. I just heard that because yesterday, uh, Tom DJ's Better in the Dark podcast, who actually he had uh, Shag on there. They're talking about Doctor Who, and they 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 mentioned that the original, like the first several uh, seasons, they they threw them away because they didn't care to do it. Yeah, and the only reason we have any of those episodes on DVDs or tapes now is because um, they uh, because other people they sold them to, like other companies that were broadcast them in other countries. Um, kept their copies but there's over there are over a hundred episodes of doctor who still missing that all we have are audio recordings of and again the only reason we have those is because kids would sit by the tv show with their tape recorders going and that's how we have audios they just they didn't realize at the time that they had gold no i mean and like the old tv shows from the 50s and stuff and like the old tonight shows with johnny carson i mean basically the network's just you know, they, they, they put it on tape, they kept the tape for so long, and then they just re-recorded over it. You know, no, <laughs> just, no, nobody thought that, you know, it was going to be uh, of any significance. And, you know, that's, um, I mean, that was, in a, in a way, getting really 
the off topic. I mean, that was part of the genius of Desi Arnaz, you know, when, you know, he said, you know what, just give me all those I'd love Lucy tapes, you know, let me keep those, you know, and the networks, you know, Des, you know, the network said, oh, sure, we ain't ever going to use these again. And then, you know, <laughs> basically, ba- I mean, yeah, I mean, basically that helped give birth to the whole uh, syndication market, you know, and made, uh, you know, and, and obviously made, you know, Desi and Lucy uh, quite rich. So <laughs> awesome. So speaking of being really rich, let's talk about Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> He's in the big time. That was my segue. Do we have uh, what other thoughts do we have on the uh, issue twenty-seven or the two-parter as a whole? Why did they only send three cops to bust that big meeting? Yes. Wow. They really could. Oh wait, this. but 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 three more showed up. So then there was six. That's like, which is still like okay, that's double, but that's still a pretty low number. They even mention it in the script. They're like, yeah, you only outnumbered us ten to one. I gotta say, um, when Spider-Man says, "Oh, go ahead." <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, I gotta say, like, like in back in issue twenty-six, the fight between uh, Spider-Man and Crime Master that ends with him getting punched off a roof. I, I, I love that. that. I love that fight. It's one of my favorite Dicko fights of all time because just because it's it's it's, it's Spider-Man getting beaten without him jobbing. I mean, because he you know he has a face full of gas, and even though he's getting whacked on, like like he says, "Oh, there's no effect. Maybe if you're in the edge, I'm off the roof." So it's it's one of those situations where it's it's a fight you can get into because you can see it happening, and it's, it's drawn really, really well. And I, I like I, li- I like the line leads sinewy muscles because nobody talks like that or things like that. But it's one of my all time favorite Dicko uh, uh, fights. When Peter um in this issue when Jonah like has Betty calling Foswell, Peter has the thought when, oh that reminds me I haven't had time to call Betty in days I wonder if she's mad. Yeah, I saw that too. Has the passage of time is, is this two parter taking place in the same day or in like a two day period? You know, it's the same. Like, it's like, it, two day period. like has has a day even passed since his conversation with Betty, where she yelled at him about Mary Jane? I don't think so. I mean, I got the impression it was all pretty. Well, that was one thing. I was like, because uh, in the first issue, the crime master like calls all the gangs together in one night. And then the next morning, Jameson all of a sudden knows who he is and is asking Frederick Foswell what he knows about him. So it wouldn't be the only that wouldn't be the only line where we actually only have a limited amount of time going by, but the characters are talking like it's longer. But then again, you know, whenever he went to Florida, they were expecting to get letters from him three hours later. So I don't know. Hollywood. Was I, I question like him thinking. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like for some reason, when Frederick Foswell came back. Not only did it get a mustache, he aged like 10 years. He looks like an old – like he looked like a shrimp in the first appearance with the, uh, when he was re- out to be the big man. But now he looks like an old guy. Like he looks like Droopy in page 12 it's, and 14. Dicko definitely changed the design. Pris- prison to does things to you. Yeah. We're sorry about that, Josh. Uh, I'll get yeah. by. And and when Betty's yelling at Peter about like the whole like he's like I don't even know Mary Jane Watson. So when Betty and Ned show up to Flash Thompson's going away party in issue forty something, and Mary Jane is there as Peter's date, I wonder if Betty like gave Peter the business like so. Don't know who Mary Jane Watson is, eh? Listen, <laughs> I'm surprised she catches this, Josh. She says, "Oh, you mean the Peter Parker who's who's dating Liz Allen?" Okay, is, is Betty dating Peter or not? Because I think she would know. And like I think she would like I don't know actually have credence to that claim just because the girl was looking for him. That's that's like a really big leap even for someone as insane as Betty Brant. It's never too big a leap for Betty Brant. Well, I mean, she saw Liz coming to Peter's house. That was like reason enough for her. And like Betty's je- a jealous of female anyway. So you know, well, it was kind of funny because um, you know at this time Peter hasn't seen Mary Jane Watson, 
but Betty is talking about how she's seen her. And, you know, Peter, you know, and I'm thinking, what would the next question be if you were Peter Parker? Oh, what does she look like? You know, and uh, but he never asked that question. He doesn't ask because he would have got him punched in the face <laughs> or kicked in the nuts. <laughs> what does he look like? Uh, I'm your girl. a screen star. Uh, exactly. We did a really funny rant on the phone the other night, me and Josh, about like podcast hosts in that scene. <laughs> I still love it. It's like, oh, excuse me, we'll write a letter to Ned Leeds. Oh, so that's okay. Yes. Haven't we gone over the rules of this relationship? You are not allowed to even be in science class with Liz Allen, but I can date as many men as I want. That's such crap. I mean, like, seriously, she's, like, she's mad, but like, at literally at no point, it's, it's really starting to drive me nuts how, how much I'm realizing that she can literally go on dates with Ned, but and she can just like, oh, but you can't date Liz Allen. I mean, where does Betty get off? I mean, seriously, like, what kind of... Obviously as many places as she can. <laughs> just ask ben riley flash thompson ned leeds and peter parker and um uh who was that guy that was the suspected to be facade arthur bryce oh, or something Lance i don't Bannon? know no 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 she was like having like that, that was, yeah you're right that was the name arthur bryce yeah wow yeah. i just pulled that out of my ear <laughs> okay uh yeah just ask all those guys the crime master complains that the Green Goblin double-crossed him in this issue. It's like, what do you mean double-crossed him? You you betrayed him. You turned on him. You attacked him. Right, Don't yeah. I also want to say that back in the very beginning of the uh, 26, like, Green, I'm no, I've never seen Green Goblin act so whiny. Like, you can't, you can't do this to me. We were supposed to be partners, and we were supposed to, like, take over the Rockies together. Remember what you said that? Come on, I thought you promised. Like, we were buddies, we were pals. The montage of like Goblin and Crime Master like running through a field of flowers, skipping hand. You were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. <laughs> you were supposed to bring balance to the Force, not destroy it. Oh, God. Leave it in darkness. You guys are reminding me of one of the worst acting performances in cinematic history. Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. Oh, no. God, that was a... Am I a part it's of you? Over. It's over, Crime Master. Eye of the high ground. <laughs> it does. It's the glider. Don't yeah. try it. <laughs> Don't try it. Okay. No, so, to, to rescue up. us from the prequels. <laughs> I think it's worth noting uh, the whole Barney Bushkin Globe thing. Peter later does spend uh, a extended mm-hmm. period of time at the Daily Globe. It's not one of those things where he like works for them for like a two-part issue. It was for uh, the better part of the latter half of Marv Wolfman's run. Uh, he went, he got fired from the uh, Bugle in issue 193. Same issue as Mary Jane dumps him, and he went to work for the Globe. Oddly enough, in a Fantastic Four issue, that's when they like introduced that. Instead of his own oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that he. Really, I, th- I thought because I, I read I had uh, it's an essential volume nine where they showed. I thought they showed him like joining the globe, but uh, he gets I, his I, first. I, was, I, was, I wasn't paying attention. Four issue is his first assignment. Okay, yeah, and and the first and the first meeting between him and April May is a panel for panel ripoff of like the first meeting of him and Gwen. It's like the same thing of like her trying to get his attention and him running off and her being no one gives April May the brush off. Nobody puts <laughs> baby in a corner. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. a ripoff. It was an homage. 
I call shenanigans. <laughs> and and God hears Spider-Man Zoda's going to go at it. Oh, God. You mentioned that that was an interesting subplot with Peter working for the globe for a while. And 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 then Denny O'Neill just came along and just canned everything. And um, it's yeah. just one of the worst issues ever. Spider-Man issue number 210. So, but yeah, that was, you know. You had Bushkin, the fake KJ Clayton, the real KJ Clayton, uh, Lance Bannon. April May. Yeah. And you had the fact that Spider Man you had the fact that Spider Man referred to April by name twice, uh, you know, during I think it was what, two oh one and two oh two or whatever. That anybody you know Exactly. Where you would I think it was pretty obvious that it was gonna be something followed up upon. Uh but you know, again it was just you know, when Wolfman left, all that just like went into the toilet. So and Daniel Neo had the legendary best run of Spider-Man ever after that. Oh, still gives me shivers. Yeah, it was. What, what it was that one? Was, was that like a I, few issues? When I bumped into him at Comic-Con, I was very tempted to, like, tell him that they just killed off Madam Web. How do you feel? Just to, like, <laughs> just to hear what he'd say. Uh, I, I suspect he doesn't even remember his run on Spider-Man. One, it was so short. Two, I've I've heard rumor. You know, I mean, you just hear stories about things that were going on in people's personal lives at the time. I mean, because really, when you think about it, he he what his first issue was number two hundred eight, and then his last last one was what two twenty three, two twenty four, something like that. Star before Stern came on, yeah, you know, that was an awfully short run, and no one's ever explained why it was so short, and. Um, uh, you know, it, it something was obviously going on behind the scenes. You know, I mean, I, I think everybody realized that it was an awful run, uh, but the full story has never really come out yet. But he did a good job on Batman. Well, that's yeah, the thing. That's did. the thing. You know, he. I mean, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I mean, you know, the stories he wrote then were, you know, maybe they were trite by current standards, but they were groundbreaking at the time. You know, I mean, he was a he was a comics legend, but man, when it came to Spider Man, he, uh, you know. He obviously left it. His best work was behind him. I just recently read that first Green Lantern, Green Arrow issue. It was in the um, the greatest team-up stories ever told hardcover from like 1989, 1990, somewhere in there. And uh, that, yeah, that's the only issue of that run that I've ever read, and I hadn't read it until just then. It was I, I thought it was good. I didn't well, think I, love, was... I, I have a lot of uh, – I have the traits of the, the O'Neill Arrow Lantern stores. They're, they're good stuff all around. They're very – they're very like PSA-esque. They're, <laughs> there's always the message, but they're, they're well-written. I mean, and uh, O'Neill created Raz al Ghul, didn't he? I mean, isn't yep. uh, yes, isn't he, he the one who created – so, created yeah, I, you know, he, he yes. obviously must have been having some kind of issues when it got around to Spider-Man. So. Maybe he just didn't know what to do with it. Maybe they gave him the character and he thought it'd be good to get his hands on it, but then once he was there, he just had no idea what to do. Maybe the readers or the editors didn't like it. So at the end of this story, um, Norman Osborn uh, talks about how he's going to lay low for a while and then he's going to really, really, really attack Spider-Man. And when you get over to the spider's web, the letters call him, they open up with a tease that they've polished off the Crime Master and they just might polish off the Goblin too next time he shows up. Which is kind of interesting, since in a way that's just what they did. They did a big old story with the Green Goblin and took him out of commission for years. Yeah, after after uh, after issue forty, he doesn't show up until is it is it the nineties or like the issue like issue uh, the well, story? Spectacular Spider-Man issue two, the yeah. like not oh, right. Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man, the special the one like the one two magazine like, um, Spectacular, yeah. which the, which the was concurrent with issue sixty six. So you have. You know, circa the 60s issue count for Spidey, and then circa the 90s. 
So, yeah. and, and right now we're, you know, we're talking issue 40. So that's, that's a pretty large gap of Green Goblin. That's crazy. I mean, Norman Osborn was like around though, like you know, he was in that Craven story that I was talking about before with Flash's going away party. Um, he saves Gwen and Captain Stacy from uh, the Kingpin and the Brainwasher story, and then supposedly after that, uh, you know, something else happened with Gwen and him behind the scenes. Oh, oh no yeah. So also in the letters column, we have Robert Stillman from the 118th Army Band, stationed in France. And also David Miller in service in Thailand. They're both um, writing in for MMMS memberships. And Stan not only gives them the membership stuffs, but also sends them free subscriptions to Spidey. That was pretty cool for uh, being in the service and stuff. Speaking of the MMMS, they have t-shirts for sale in this comic. And they also get a mention in the Barney Bushkin scene. Copy boy, bring this article on the MMMS to the feature editor. Step on it. Tim Wise complains that they gave away the Goblin's plan at the beginning of the issue in number 23. And then it was just a matter of, like, you know, going through the plan. And to me, I've, I've always heard that, like, if you're going to have a plan as part of your story, you only reveal it ahead of time if it's all going to go horribly wrong. If, if you're just going to go through with the plan and you don't say what it is ahead of time, you just, you know, make that your story. But obviously Stanley didn't agree. We do get another tease for the second Spider-Man annual coming in July, which will be featuring, they don't say this yet, but it'll be featuring Doctor Strange. We have that coming at you in two episodes. And George Hagenauer says that the issue 23 Goblin story was better than issue 14 because the Hulk wasn't there. Oh, poor Brad Douglas. Yeah, poor Brad Douglas. Sorry, Brad. And uh, lastly, Freddie Adams mentions that the letters page is his favorite part of the book. And really, they're always fun for me to read as well, which is why I always bring them to the show. I'm, I'm, I know it's a compliment, but that's got to be a really substandard issue if the letter pages are your favorite part of the book. <laughs> yeah. all, all the Betty and Liz drama, you know, and Dr. Octopus serial rapist. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff in the actual issue. It just goes to show how much you think of us. You can believe me, it's appreciated out here in Marvel Land. So, As Steve Jaco throws up his hands, all these pages of art and you like the letters pages? Ah! <laughs> Jumps out the window. Dick there away. is right and there is wrong. <laughs> so we have two very special ads this month. Marvel was shaking up their lineup. First we have Now, starring in Strange Tales, the surprise sensation of the year, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's dynamite! <laughs> and there's a little this... arrow pointing to the Now eye patch Nick Fury that reads, Well, who do you think this is? Tuesday Weld? Another reference to Tuesday Weld. I think, okay, I, I'm looking at Tuesday Weld right now. I think Stan had a crush, is what I'm thinking. And this is, of course, an effort to show what Sergeant Fury of the War Comics fame was doing in the modern Mary Marvel universe. I can just imagine they probably got letters about this. You know, you have Sergeant Fury in World War II. What's he doing now in superhero land? But um, interestingly, this was not the first time that Nick Fury had appeared in a comic story set in the present day. He had appeared in an issue of the Fantastic Four a year or two earlier. Without the eye patch, he was working for the CIA at the time. But this little bit of continuity with the eye patch will be retconned way down the road when the Sergeant Fury book actually told the origin of Nick Fury's eye patch. Dun dun dun. I think he was also at Reed and Sue's wedding, and that was like pre-Shield. I could oh, be I, wrong. I think you're right. We're gonna. I'm gonna look at that issue in annual season because Spidey appears. So why does uh, Nick Fury wear an eye patch? I never, I never actually thought about that. I haven't read the story about. I haven't read any. Sorry, I mean, I read like one or two Sergeant Fury books, but not that one. 
So I don't know why he would. Maybe of course, the real interesting the real interesting story is not you know is how he went from uh, from the Nick Fury of the '60s to uh, looking like Samuel L. Jackson in the movies. So well, if Norman Osborn <laughs> can do that, you know, incognito, then I guess everybody needs to hide out. <laughs> everybody got ready. that machine from Superman. Oh, that's right. I am curious, black. This old comic books in your black face. <laughs> I'd like to have a, a race change operation, please. <laughs> also, we didn't, 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 the Punisher, didn't the Punisher was was, was like black randomly for like an issue or something like that in the nineties? I don't I have no clue about that. The Punisher was. was originally like working for Galactus. Originally, or at one point? <laughs> no, it did, okay. Before the Jerry Conway Punisher, um, in that Galactus, uh, in those Galactus issues of the Fantastic Four, before the Silver Surfer arrives, like another Galactus. Oh yeah. So I, I, that, that, that's what I was referencing. Oh yeah, that's that's good. There was a yeah a um, Galactus stooge called the Punisher. That's pretty good. I remember that now. Punisher would be a good herald for Galactus though. Okay. What do you well, think, Jr.? You like the Punisher? I'm just <laughs> trying to get over the fact that he's now Frankencastle. You know that uh, that really uh, that really I, I don't know. And wasn't he like possessed by a demon or something? And dur- earlier in the run or something? I mean, they were doing some really squirrely things with him. Um, but uh, no, I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with the uh, the Galactus Herald thing. So I think the Punisher is one of those characters that you run out of his basic concept so easily that you have to come up with different stuff to make it interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was he. They basically ran him. They ran him into the ground. I mean, it was kind of like you know Marvel did with Venom years later or whatever. They this character all of a sudden exploded in popularity, and they just uh, you know kept you know producing stuff with him until people were just literally sick of it. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean that that was the Punisher's a character where definitely less is definitely. Yeah. Have you read the uh, Ennis run? Garth Ennis. Um, Punisher Max. Yeah. Yeah, I've not read the run, but I did get the uh, the Punisher the end that he wrote, and that was really that was really good. It was really strange, and it was like absolutely nothing that you would think a Punisher story would be like. Uh, but it was it was it was very interesting. So. We also had uh, on the same page, the other half of the page, as an ad for the most famous, most powerful hero slash villain of all time, now appearing monthly in Tales to Astonish. Prince Namor, the Submariner, the most enthusiastically requested series since Gulliver's Travels. Only really? Mighty Marvel could present him in all his regal grandeur. Yeah, really. Only you, the new breed of reader, are worthy of such a literary and artistic triumph. Do we have any Namor fans in the group? <laughs> Goodness gracious, no. Um, I feel about him like kind of like what Tr said about like I like reading him in Fantastic Four like when you know he's playing off of his relationships with Reed and Sue and everything by himself. No. Yeah, I've never been that big a Namor fan. I did give this strip a try when I was reading the Hulk books from the Tales to Astonish. It had a few background plots that would continue, but it was mainly just him fighting either Atlantean villains for his throne or sea monsters issue after issue and. At least at first, the ones that I've read, it, that's the way it was. He would have these like long, protracted quests that seemed to never end. It would just involve him fighting these random things he finds in the ocean. Actually, I think I think Namor's a cool character. I'm just not not a guy who like you know sees long, long stories of him uh, from like you know years ago. I, Don't I think forget he's, kind of cool he's a Hollywood also. executive. 
<laughs> as everyone else is in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, right. like he randomly – no, he was randomly like a Hollywood executive in that early FF issue. They're like, I oh, believe so you. I, I was there. I read that. Yeah, it was like number t- – I think it was number 10. <laughs> Can we really trust the guy who's trying to kill us? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> trying to kill us oh well <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, wait crap and then like he's telling Sue aha I've just tried to murder your brother and your fiance and other friend now will you marry me <laughs> way to win her heart you know? so those two issues were Strange Tales when were 135 and Tales to Astonish 70 they would do away with the Human Torch and Giant Man strips and with Giant Man off the Avengers right now the Pims would actually not be seen in Marvel for several months to come the other two ads are, yeah, which means no more Dory Evans. Aww. Aww. Who misses her? The most unlikable Silver Age Marvel girlfriend ever, and that's saying Until a lot. Until you get to Gwen Stacy. No, yeah. No, no, I'd say Dory Evans is worse. Well, we shall see. We can't talk badly about Gwen Stacy. She's Peter's first and only true love. But Peter wasn't her first. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Hello. Give that man a cigar. The other ads are a little less exciting. We have the X-Men number 12 with the premiere of the Juggernaut and some insight into Professor X's past. And then Journey into Mystery 118 has Thor fighting the Destroyer. So if anyone who wants to see this baddie before he appears in the upcoming Thor movie, check out Journey into Mystery number 118. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all I have. Do we have any uh, other thoughts we want to share on the on the two-parter? I think anything we could have forgotten to say or would never have thought to say was said by our wonderful guest, JR. Yay, JR. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, like I said, you guys, you guys, you guys got desperate. You know, next, next week, next uh, issue, next uh, podcast, what, number 20, you'll get a real guest in there. So, uh, but at least I stayed awake for this one, though. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> I will say that. So, uh, and it is after midnight Cleveland time. So, uh you know, I'm hanging in there Go ahead. to follow up on what Don said at the beginning. And, you know, I don't want to get too fanboy, but like, you know, like Donovan, I'm, I've been reading JR's articles since I was a teenager and I always enjoyed them immensely. And that's how I came across the crawl space. I kind of was one of the JR readers that followed him there. And I mean, Wait. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go too soppy, like you're my inspiration or anything <laughs> like that. But, uh, JR has always been uh, one of my favorites and it's, you know, it's always fun the podcast with him. So I'm, uh, you know, grateful to hear that. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it is always, um, you know, it's always been kind of one of the, um, the, the thing I, um, when I write those articles and it's a sh- like I said, I've, I've got some of them started to stockpile now, but I haven't been able to release them because I can't finish them. Cause I've got, you know, like I said, my son's got football practice two to four days a week. <laughs> so, you know, there's between that and, and some other things, I just can't get them done. But, uh, you know, when people tell me that, you know, as a result of, you know, the stuff I've written, they go back into the back issue bin or something like that, and they pull out stories and they get a new appreciation for them. I mean, those are high praise, you know, and um, I always appreciate, you know, the good things people have to say. And, you know, appreciate you guys inviting me here and being allowing me to be a guest in your house and uh, essentially as it was. So and the green room is a lot better than Brad's over at the crawl space. I mean, you know, I mean, here. <laughs> You know, here the coffee is fresh, the donuts are fresh, you know, and, you know, Brad's is like uh, the, uh, you know, like a, a jury when I served on jury duty one time, you know, I mean, it's kind of like that. Twelve people crammed into a room and one non-functional coffee machine and only one working bathroom. So, oh, well, so. sorry, Brad, love you, but, you know, got to have a little fun. <laughs> well, John, well, we, is fully stocked, you know. 
yeah, try to try to keep this place looking good. And we definitely did appreciate having you on. And uh, we we all have a great respect for you and your your experience with the character and your knowledge of his his uh, his past deeds and everything. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, no problem, no problem at all. I was I was glad to be here, and, and like I said, I appreciate the invitation. I'm flattered. And the rest of you on the crawl space panel, I have half of you down. I'm coming for the rest of you. Dun, dun, dun. JR, why don't you just one more time give a uh, let's see, you have the SpideyKicksButt.com website, right? Yes, yes. Even though the new material has been Spartan recently, I mean, there's still about 10, 10 years worth of archives uh, and articles that are still up. And uh, some of them are actually even still relevant, <laughs> although some are getting rather dated. But yes, SpideyKicksButt.com. Um, I've got my own. Brad uh, has been, you know, after I've insulted him now, now I'm going to, you know, uh, <laughs> thank him. Uh, for, you know, he's given me a forum on his dime, uh, at, uh, at the Spider-Man crawl space and, and, you know, and you can hear me every month, um, with the, with the rest of the guys, uh, and, uh, you know, and, or I should say guys and Stella on the, uh, Spider-Man crawl space podcast. So, uh, unfortunately you have, you have, there probably is more of me than most people can stand, uh, particularly, uh, my family. So, <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, J.R. Fettinger, thank you very much again for being on the show. And that brings us to the end of episode 19 of Amazing Spider-Man Classics. A couple of notes before we let you go for this time. Want to give a shout out to Mr. Scott Gardner of Two True Freaks, a family of podcasts over at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. He was kind enough to hook me up with some uh, music tracks and sound riffs and stuff from the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon show. And since that's kind of the basis of our music and other things for this show, I may be sticking those in from time to time, so he gets a thanks for that. Also want to say thank you once again to J.R. Fettinger for joining us for the show this time around. He has put more study and in-depth work into the characters of the Osborns and the Goblins than anyone I know. And so whenever we have a big Green Goblin story coming around, we're going to see if he's available to talk it out with us and share his knowledge. So look forward to that in future episodes. also want to say thank you one more time to roll to play for being our sponsor from here on on Amazing Spider-Man Classics. They can be found at Roll2Play.com, spelled with the number 2, or on Facebook if you search Roll2Play, all one word, again spelled with the number 2. They are constantly showing up at conventions and traveling around, and they have lots of good deals and products on their website. 15% off all products right now for the fall season, getting ready to go into the holidays. And that wraps us up. We would love to hear from you. You may contact us at AmazingSpidermanClassics at gmail.com. You can also leave an iTunes review or subscribe to the show through iTunes on the Amazing Spider-Man Classics page. There's also our website, recently redesigned a few weeks back by my brother, Jim Wilson of JimWilsonDesigns.com. Want to give a big happy birthday to him because this is October 10th of 2010. 10 10 10 and he is turning the big 30 on 10 10 10 so as this show is going up we are partying and having fun with family and friends and lots of lots of good times so while you're listening to spidey just think happy birthday to my brother who gave us such a wonderful website happy birthday jimbo 
that website is amazingspiderman.libsyn.com. You can see postings for the show, uh, notes about what we're going to be talking about, and also there's a link there for our Facebook page, which you can like and then get notified on your Facebook of new episodes and such as they go up. Next time on Amazing Spider-Man Classics, uh, look for the episode around the 20th of the month. We have another special guest joining us for that episode as we discuss issues 28 and 29 of Amazing Spider-Man. So we'll see you next time. And until then, as always, thank you for listening to Amazing Spider-Man Classics. Good night. Okay, can we stop for a second? I'm concerned that I might not be recording. Oh, that would suck. I started the recorder, I know that I did, but it's not displaying the right information, so let me just... Oh, I'm glad you say that, my boy. Come in and we'll have a talk. Okay, you cut out there, and it was an awesome voice, so do it again. I'm glad to hear you say that, my boy. Come in and we'll have a talk. Okay, do it again, just because. No, really? Just <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> really? Okay.